On this week's Are You Afraid of the Dark-themed episode, we visit the Rialto Theater in the tale of the Midnight Madness, where we get up close and personal with a classic Nosferatu film. Bring your quarters and come hang out at the Mall Arcade as we discuss the tale of the Pinball Wizard. Welcome to the Nostalgic Millennial Podcast, where we will nerd out over the shows, movies, books, games, and more that made us who we are today. Prepare yourself for a return to the 1990s on the Nostalgic Millennial Podcast. Up first, we have the tale of the Midnight Madness. So this is the season two, uh, episode two, June 26th, 1993. Okay, so pretty early season. There's a lot of interesting uh, stuff with the casting in here, especially with our good friend Aaron Tagger, who we have met before. Um, If you don't know who he is, you'll find out pretty soon. We also have a couple of protagonists in this story. We have a boy named Pete. And a girl named Katie. They're teenage type age characters. Uh, neither of them have really done a whole lot post Are You Afraid of the Dark? But we do have another actor named Chris Heyerdahl who plays our monster in this episode. And we'll be hearing a little bit more about him as well. Before I get into it, uh, you know, I am a big fan of this one. And it really goes back to uh, childhood for me. A lot of memories of this one. I originally watched this, I believe, on the night that it aired, because it was in the summer. And the memory I have here was of being at my grandma's house, and my two older cousins were there. And we were up, to me it felt like it was late, of course, right? But we were watching Snick, and Are You Afraid of the Dark was always at the end of the Snick lineup. And we watched this episode together, Now, I might have mentioned this on a previous episode, but if you didn't hear that, and by chance it's paywalled by now, just kidding. Well, maybe, maybe not. This is one that genuinely scared me when I saw it. And if it was 1993, June 26th, I would have been six years old. To me, this one was genuinely terrifying, mainly because of the monster, the Nosferatu style vampire that we see in here and I was pretty freaked out by it now I was trying to be cool because I was there with my older cousins didn't want them to know that I was freaked out but then later on at night whenever we were all going to bed I had to go and you know tell my grandma that I was freaked out about this vampire because it was really getting into my under my skin uh but despite that I, I really love this one. In fact, it's it's my favorite Are You Afraid of the Dark episode, and we will uh, we'll find out why. So, before I jump into the first scene, because we are going to narrate these episodes for you in case you have not heard them in some time. Not word for word, but we'll go through scene by scene and then have a discussion. So, before I jump right into the Midnight Society, anything you would like to add up top? 
I don't have any distinctive memories of this episode. And I kind of feel like I am a listener right now in some ways. You, you mentioned our narration. The whole point of that is just to orient somebody that maybe is like me who probably saw it, but doesn't have actual memories of it. Therefore, we're kind of new to it. You may have vague memories of it, but that, you know, we encourage you to go rewatch the episode so you can really orient yourself to what we're talking about. But this way, this episode is something you could just pick up. Here are conversations. We're going to go scene by scene, telling you everything that's happening worthwhile. So in case you didn't watch the episode, you're still able to understand a bit of what we're talking about when we get into the various themes. So I can't wait to begin this journey with you. Midnight Society, first scene. Every Are You Afraid of the Dark episode opens with a little uh, skit with the Midnight Society. It sort of sets up the theme of the story, and this one is no different. Uh, we have Gary, the old senior member of the Midnight Society. What was he? Probably like 17, 16, 17, I would imagine. He's there with Betty Ann. They're trying to start a fire. Uh, Kristen is out getting some firewood. And we see Kiki and David rushing in suddenly, and they're all excited. And we learn that there is a triple feature Fright Night. Uh, it's a monster movie marathon that is happening, I guess, that same night. I don't know how they have time to go out to do their Midnight Society thing and then go to the movie afterwards. I guess it's a really late feature that they're going to. Frank, uh, who of course is our uh, storyteller who is known for Dr. Vink stories, Frank tells us that he went to Fright Night before and he is never going back. Kiki always tries to sort of make fun of people, tries to sort of poke fun. And she says, why? Because you're afraid of the dark. Now we learned this previously that Frank is actually afraid of the dark. And he says, no, that's not the reason why. Now, that's his lead-in, is this idea that the separation between reality and fantasy and how movies play with that, which, going back to my original story, that was why I brought up that story. It actually goes to Frank's theme, because uh, as a kid, when I was six, it was really hard to separate reality from what I was seeing on the screen, so maybe I should have listened to Frank if I had been paying better attention but this got me thinking, and of course, at this point, he throws the magic dust on the fire, and he tells us that the name of this tale is the Tale of the Midnight Madness. Now, before we go into the actual story, I wanted to ask, did you ever have trouble with this exact idea of fantasy versus reality, especially when you were younger? No, I never did. And it might be because my parents isolated me somewhat from a lot of it, but I think that's, the, I mean, that's the whole point of the movies. It's the whole point. It's, it's to remove yourself from reality and enter this new world. And 
it's great. Even to today, when my wife and I will leave a movie, we basically enter the real world from the perspective of whatever movie we just left. So we, you know, if we're leaving Lord of the Rings, we feel like we're, we're going to Mordor, you know, and, and yet it's just this, you know, empty parking lot or whatnot. And that's the beauty of it. That's what's fun about it. I honestly, I really never had any nightmares about the only nightmare I remember ever having was with Beavis and Butthead, which is completely irrelevant. And I have no idea why, but I watched that one time and that scared me. And I remember sitting on the stairs and saying, mommy, I need you know, whatever. I should never have watched it. I wasn't allowed to watch MTV, but that's the only nightmare I had. And then, yeah, I, I watched Are You Afraid of the Dark and I loved scary stories, but I was always able to compartmentalize it and having kids anytime we watch anything, cause they watch Harry Potter, they watch goosebumps, ghostbusters, lots of scary stuff because in part, I love doing it with them. I love sharing that experience with them and I don't want to wait until they're 13, but I always preface, listen, you have to compartmentalize. This is just pretend if you can't do that, we're not going to watch it anymore. And so, you know, they're, they're getting there to the point where it's fine. You know, my daughter's fine. My son's five. He's had a couple nightmares, not related to anything we've seen, but it may have been, but I feel like they're, I'm training them to compartmentalize. It's all pretend. It's all fiction. It, it, none of it's real. It's just enjoy it for what it is and move on. Yeah, I don't know. I think from my point of view, I think of nightmares as something that are um, kind of like a rite of passage that you sort of, you know, it's a thing that happens when you're a kid. And like I said, you know, this particular episode didn't exactly give me nightmares, but it made me afraid, like to go to bed at night that night. But it's my favorite episode. It's the stuff that impacts you that you remember. So I think that's interesting. But Frank's whole point of view here uh, is going to play out in a pretty literal way whenever we uh, get into the story. Let's talk a little bit about the triple feature. Now, I know it's very late, but I do know with drive-ins, they do double features and they, they do start at like seven, you know, which reasonably could have been when they gather depending on the time of year. And yeah, they'll do one at seven. And basically the second movie is not starting until something like 11. And so to me, that's crazy. I've never actually done a full double feature. I remember one time my wife and I tried and we said, nah, we're just going to go home. And my father-in-law got scared and was waiting behind the door with his fist exposed, ready to attack me, thinking that I was some intruder. And I was mortified, mortified by that. I think the longest I've ever done, I did do a Lord of the Rings extended movie marathon Lots of Taco Bell. I mean, that may have been upwards of eight to nine hours. That's the longest I've ever done. But of course, that was inside during the day tonight. But yeah, doing a triple feature at seven. I mean, as kids, where are their parents? What, what's going on at that time? That, that would never fly today. I just didn't even know that triple features existed. Like, I always heard of double features, but triple? I, I don't know. But um, regardless they're going to at least miss the first movie. I mean, cause they're at the midnight society. So I, I feel like that's an odd sort of, um, framing. To, I mean, I, I really like it. I like the idea of the fright night, bringing up the idea of the feature. I just thought it was random that they made it a triple feature instead of a double or something like that. But this does put me in the mood for quite a lot of nostalgia regarding just movie theaters and the experience of seeing a movie. Um, but maybe I'll hold on to that as to when we actually get into the theater here. Well, I'm ready to go in. Are you? 
Let's do it. I mean, what's the worst that could happen, right? So we enter the Rialto. Now, I did a little bit of research on this name, Rialto, and I don't know if they're referencing... I just sort of doubt that this is referencing this exact theater, but there is a famous Rialto, or at least there was, that was in New York City. And it was built in 1916, rebuilt on a smaller scale in 1935 to make room for more shops and office spaces around the building, and then finally torn down for good in 1998. But of course, this predates that by five years. This is from 1993. So if they're referencing the famous theater, then maybe there's something there. But we don't really know that for a fact. So anyway, as we enter into the Rialto Theater, we see that there is a very empty theater. Uh, We have an old lady who is sort of slow clapping along to the end of a film that is just played. And as she walks out of the theater, she tells our main character, Pete, that basically, oh, she doesn't actually tell him much of anything. He asks her how the movie was, and she sort of just scoffs at him and, and just walks out in a very sort of crotchety type of way. And we see Pete and Katie uh, the other person who works there, um, these are our two main characters, like teenage characters. And uh, we also meet Mr. Kristoff. Uh, Mr. Kristoff is the sort of snake oil type manager uh, who we, you know, we will see he has some questionable morals as we get further into things here. He's pretty upset. He looks at the register and he says, six bucks, that's it. And it turns out that part of that was because Pete bought a pop uh, and that contributed to their ticket sales uh, for the night. Now, there's some talk that maybe this place is going to get torn down or sold because it's doing so badly. Katie, you know, has a line here that I wanted to mention as she's sort of looking at the uh, the two used cups that were used during the showing. She says, maybe we can reuse these. Makes me wonder, does that ever happen? Maybe, who knows? Uh, but anyway, Katie lets drop that, you know, she is going to be applying for a new job at this new big uh, quad theater that has opened up uh, and that she pretty much says, you know, she needs a job. Pete's not happy about it. Um, Not happy at all, because we see that Pete is not just in love with the Rialto Theater. He is also in love with Katie. He says, hey, do you want to get something to eat? And he just gets totally shut down, like just savagely just rejected. Katie's like, oh, um, yeah, you know, I have homework to do. And that's pretty much our introduction to uh, the Rialto Theater. Now, there is a very brief uh, scene after this where Pete is really worried that the theater is going to be shut down. So we see him out on the streets with flyers that he has made up that say to save the Rialto. Come see a movie the old-fashioned way. And he's handing out these flyers to everybody that he can reach out in the streets. But 
they don't seem too interested. They're throwing them away and pretty much ignoring his efforts. So it looks like, despite Pete's best efforts, that this old theater that he loves is going to be shut down. It's a beautiful theater, though. It has this very old style, the red carpet, and... It's just in this old-fashioned, like, turn-of-the-century type style. It's showing films that are already older films. It's not getting new releases at this point in time. And it just sort of has this time capsule type of vibe to it. Even Pete and Katie are dressed up in these old sort of usher uniforms with vests and everything. I love the way the theater is presented. Well, first I gotta say to Pete... About it being a landmark that does not always <laughs> that does not always matter. Money talks, man, and it takes me back to my uncle who lived next door. So he has his house right, literally to the left of his house. He shared a parking lot. He was able to use the parking lot with the Detroit Theater, and it was a historical landmark, etc. The same exact situation made in it was built in 1912, and then guess what? People stopped going. Mickey D's came in and said, we want this, we want this. And he's like, whoa, hey, this was a cool spot. You know, we could walk to the movies and now we're going to get get a Mickey D's with all the bright lights. And it's, I mean, the, the lights are insane. The traffic was insane. And he became an activist just like Pete. And, and he was going on the news saying, listen, this is historical. It's going to destroy our neighborhood. It's going to, didn't matter. Mickey D's is there now. And so that was my first thought. I said, Pete, you, Money talks, man. So you got to get some money. And, you know, thankfully there is hope for this theater shortly. We're, we're not quite there yet. Well, yeah, you know who does have some money? I mean, I don't want to spoil anything, but let's just say his name starts with a va, va, va. The other thing is you mentioned that it's a beautiful theater, and it is. And I would love to see a movie there. But one thing that Pete says is basically, I got to go clean up the aisles. And so I was kind of curious about your perspective on etiquette after movies. So I'm kind of like you, you, you reasonably clean up after yourself. My wife is, there's got to be nothing left. So there's no popcorn kernel, nothing. And we just saw Minions last week. And I'm telling you, Matt, like the amount of people just, it's like they dumped entire, they dumped entire buckets of popcorn. It had to be. I have no other explanation for it. I mean, people just throwing trash on the floor as a rite of passage. I couldn't believe it. It was so messy. And I, I understand the workers like Peter are going to clean it up. But what, what was your what is your etiquette when you go to see a movie with regard to cleaning up after yourself? Because technically, the mess keeps them employed, but at the same time, it's rude. So I didn't know what, what your thoughts on that were. No, I'm similar to you on that. I, I clean up what I would consider reasonably, meaning that... I mean, you know, I'm not in there dumping popcorn on the floor. I want to eat all that popcorn. And typically what happens is when we go to a movie, because, of course, the concessions are outrageously overpriced, what we will do is we buy, like, one drink and one popcorn, and then we share it, my wife and I, between ourselves. And so, you know, the only mess that we create is, like, if you miss your face when you're trying to like scarf the popcorn in the dark and it falls on the floor, I'm not on my hands and knees picking up kernels. Okay. On the movie carpet. I'm, I'm not doing that, but all bottles, uh, paper waste, like napkins and the popcorn itself, like the container or whatever, th- those are all 
definitely getting thrown away. But, you know, I think I think it's expected you're going to have some stray kernels somewhere on the seat or the floor. But the idea that people are uh, flagrantly just dumping popcorn, not cool. Also, that is expensive popcorn. Like, what are you thinking? Why, why would you do that? I guess unlimited refills. There's like, I'm going to give them, I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt that they spilled it by accident and just didn't clean it up. Kind of like what you said, you don't want to go on the carpet and pick up every kernel, but it was quite a bit of popcorn. I mean, if I spilled like a large amount, I would try to scoop at least most of it back in and and like throw it out. You know what I mean? Because, because I think, I think with, with me, maybe there's like, you know, a few stray bits here or there, but I've never dumped a popcorn even by mistake. So if I did, if I, if I like dumped my whole popcorn, like I would at least scoop some of it in there. I don't know, man. It seems, seems a little bit, uh, rude. I would say. Given that there was one person in the theater that Pete had to clean up, clean up after, it's the old lady, right? And she was kind of my spirit animal in a way because she was just vibing out, man. She's retired. She's old. She's clapping at the end of movies by herself. And I would totally see movies by myself. And I remember, you know, in summers, I'd go through the IMDb Top 250 just watching movies alone in my basement because it's cheaper than, you know, going to see the movies. And that's actually the, the origin of the movie crew in college when we would go. Our leader, our leader, Diesel, would go and just be by himself. And we found out he's going by himself. We're like, Hey, can we tag along? And that started the whole movie crew. So I kind of, obviously I, I hope when I'm older, obviously I'm with my wife and we can do that ourselves, but I definitely, I understood her. And that, that seemed like it was pretty good that she was just by herself at the movies. Is that something that you would do? Obviously you have, you have your wife, but is that something you could see yourself doing? Oh, easily. I, uh, I have done that before. I mean, I do sometimes go to movies, not regularly, but I'd say two or three times. You know, if there's a movie that I know either I I like, it just happens to be a time where I'm free and she's not, or she doesn't really want to see it, then yeah, I just go myself. And honestly, it's it's pretty good fun to go to the movies by yourself because you're not really, even when you go with someone, it's not like you're hopefully not, talking with them during the film and everything. Uh, you know, the good part is you can talk about it afterwards. I don't do it regularly. I think the last time was probably years ago, but uh, yeah, I would easily go by myself, no doubt. Yeah, it's hard going with somebody because if you're really liking the movie and you're vibing and then they're not, it's very awkward to try to discuss the movie because it's like, okay, you know, you, you hope you both like it, but you have that risk. And so... By yourself, you can like it, you can hate it, feel however you want to feel, no awkwardness. So I'm with I'm with the old lady there. We go back to the theater, and everyone's a little bit depressed. Uh, the showings are still not going well. The attempt to try to get this landmark status to save the theater from Pete doesn't seem to be working out. And as we are in the theater... Pete and Katie, still with not much to do because the theater is still not doing well, all of a sudden we notice something happening at the door. The theater is not opened yet at this point in time, and Pete and Katie are just getting ready for their shift, but someone is trying to open the door. We see the knob starting to wiggle. Pete goes over to tell this person, hey, come back in an hour. We're not open yet. 
Then suddenly, this locked doorknob turns on its own and unlocks. Out steps. At first, we don't see his face. He has his hat down over his face. But we see this hunched sort of figure with a large sort of cape-like coat that he's wearing and this hat that he slowly pulls up to reveal none other than Dr. Vink. You will have known Dr. Vink if you followed some of our other episodes and if you remember him from the old days of the 90s. But Katie has never met Dr. Vink. And of course, Dr. Vink has to reply. And at that point, Dr. Vink, we see, is holding a flyer. And the flyer that he has is one of the ones that Pete has been trying to hand around town. And he seems very interested in the theater. He loves the smell of the theater when he comes in. He says it has an old theater smell to it that new ones don't have. So as he goes off talking about the theater, wandering about, Katie, sort of behind his back, calls him a nutbag. This is another thing that is very common with Dr. Vink. Now, Kristoff, the manager, sees Vink at this point, and they get into a conversation about the theater, and Dr. Vink declares that he is here to save his theater. And then he notes, in fact, that he is not a nutbag. This is a fun thing with Dr. Vink, because he always hears things that he shouldn't hear. He knows things he shouldn't know. Uh, And there's another example of that coming up, actually. Now, Vink tells us that once upon a time, he was a filmmaker. I guess that he did this, I don't know, either before or after the time that he was a botanist in uh, that cottage in the woods in the tale of the Phantom Cab that we talked about before. But anyway, uh, apparently he was a filmmaker. Katie has this comment where she says, how old are you? Because... He uh, says that he made black and white films. He made films without sound. And he talks about how, in his opinion, modern films are no good. He he says that his films heighten creativity and the mind, whereas the modern films bludgeon the mind into submission, that basically these older films are an outlet to imagination, whereas the new films don't let you imagine anything. They just show it right to you. I thought that was an interesting philosophy that he had right there. Now, what he wants, uh, he tells us that one of the films that he's really proud of is this vampire film that he made. It's a horror film, a vampire film. He says that what makes it special is that the vampire wins in his story. What does he want? Why is he telling us all this? Well, it turns out that he believes that this film can actually assure the success of the Rialto. He says that if they show his film, it will guarantee their success. And all he wants in return is that once their success is assured, that he gets one night a week to show his other films. 
One night of Mr. Kristoff's choosing, even, Vink doesn't care when, as long as he gets his one night. Now, one thing I wanted to mention is that prior to this, Mr. Kristoff asks Vink what exactly he wants, and he assumes that he wants money. And Dr. Vink basically says, you know, this film that I'm giving you will make you way more than six bucks a night. Now, here's another thing. How does Vink know about the six bucks? Because that was something that Kristoff said way before in the opening scene, that they only made six bucks that night. It was a Friday night. Somehow Vink knows that Kristoff made that comment all those nights ago. But anyway, Kristoff doesn't seem convinced. He thinks that Vink is crazy. And he basically tells him, he basically doesn't think that there's any chance of this working out. Vink has a great line where he says, I don't want your popcorn money. That's probably one of my favorites. And he sort of knocks his film off of the stage. And then as it falls and Pete goes to catch it, Vink disappears. He just vanishes from the theater when everyone looks back up. Mr. Kristoff decides, okay, we're not going to listen to this guy. He's crazy. Throw the film out. We don't want anything to do with this. Now, jumping ahead a little bit, we see that Pete is still continuing his campaign. It's not going very well. And we are going to return to the theater on a Saturday night. Unfortunately, this is where we will find out that the Rialto is going to be closing in two weeks because of its failure as a theater. Oh, I got, I got a lot to say. First of all, I mean, why would you throw, I mean, it's, it's a movie where a vampire wins. Why would you throw away Twilight, right? Why would you throw that away? I mean, that is a money maker, right? I mean, and you're going to get sequels from that, right? We're talking Twilight, right? Yeah, yeah, it's Twilight. It's, it's, uh, it's totally the silent uh, original <laughs> film version of Twilight. Or maybe... You can't beat Edward conquering Bella, right? I mean, that's 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 too strong. Too strong. Well, here's the fun part. There is actually a Twilight connection here, but I'm not quite ready to spoil it yet, so you'll just have to hang on to that. I do want to talk about Vink's philosophy because I kind of disagree with him because I understand what he's saying, where when you show more, you remove imagination. So he talks about movie theaters before wide screens and color and sound, because when you have sound, you don't have to picture the sound. When you see pictures, you don't have to picture what the characters look like, what color they are, etc. And the reason I disagree with him is that's kind of what film is. I think if you're looking for the a purified version of just imagination, you have books. That's what books do. Books, you have to picture what the characters look like. They're described, but you still have to imagine it. You have to imagine what the characters sound like. You have to imagine the scenery, etc. And so I agree with him in a sense that, yeah, you remove imagination with film, but that's kind of the point of the medium. That's what it does. And so I understand what he's saying, but at the same time, film is designed to do that. And if you just want pure imagination, go read a book or just think of a book, create a book, right? Because even a book technically with the text removes some imagination. And in Vink's scenario, his movies were black and white without sound, but they still had pictures. And so it removed a lot of the imagery. And that's part of what I like about film. 
because I mentioned Lord of the Rings before. It was hard for me really to, to dive deep into the books because Tolkien does such a great job describing scenery. And I'm not, I do not have a brain that can contemplate imagination. And so when he's describing all these landscapes, my brain just can't process it. But when I watch a movie, it does it for me in a brilliant way. And so I can move on to the other things such as the themes. And those things can still exist in a movie if done properly. At the same time, I kind of agree with him in a sense where you can inundate people with these images, sounds, actions. You know, I think of like Avengers. It's just, it's mindless in the sense that you're so inundated with constant fighting. Any Michael Bay film, it's like constant music, constant action, constant fighting, that there's no imagination. You have no idea about motives, character development, anything like that. You're just, boom, it's just, you're kind of mindless. And so I think that's probably what he's getting at. But at the same time, I felt that film is a medium that takes away some of that imagination. So you can really focus your mind on the things that you want to, if you like film. And that's why I love film. I don't want to think about the imagery and the colors and what the characters look like. I just want to think about the motives and the motifs, etc. I think film does that beautifully. That's why I like that medium. So I disagree with him in that, but I agree with him that it can be misused to inundate you and remove imagination. Yeah, I think I'm somewhere in between. I, I think that it. well, really what you were saying is there are certain films where it goes too far. I, I think you need to see sort of the happy medium there. I am not an aficionado of silent films. I do obviously prefer more to be shown to me than to have to imagine to that extent. And you are right that I think books are the correct medium for that, um, for full scale imagination, you know, that is sort of the purpose of film is to make things seem real and, and lifelike and to see it before your eyes. I will say that my one silent film that I actually do love is Nosferatu, which this is based off of. And we'll talk a little bit more about that when it when we see it here in just a second. But one thing I wanted to point out too, this might be a small thing. Well, first of all, I love Vink's entrance. He's always so, he's literally perfect for this because of how theatrical he is. Like he's in the theater, but, and he comes in with the sort of face hidden under his hat and this like billowing cloak that he's wearing. And you can tell that this that Aaron Tagger, the guy who plays Vink, is a stage actor. He's trained in that medium, which is kind of interesting because he criticizes films. And as a stage actor, that would kind of make sense that you might criticize film. And I know you have experience as a stage actor from when we were in college, but uh, so I don't know if you can speak to that. But uh, one thing I did want to mention is that he mentions the the theater smell. Uh, to me, that was actually a really cool line because there is, I mean, he claims that new theaters don't have that smell. They eventually get it, though. Like when you walk into a theater, it sort of is permeated with the smell of popcorn, the concessions and everything that really lights up my nostalgia, just being in that sort of space. That's one thing that kind of makes me sad about how everything's going to streaming these days. I really don't like that people can see new releases at home, and that might be an unpopular opinion, but 
to me, this is like we talked about before back in the nineties when we were growing up in order to experience certain things like movies, you had a whole process of experience that went along with that. It wasn't just, I'm going to sit here and watch a movie on my couch. It was, let's get in the car, go to the, go to the theater, going to go in, find our seats, get our popcorn. It's a whole experience, right? And that sort of experience is completely lacking when you do that at home. You pop a little popcorn in the microwave, watching a movie on the couch. Yeah, it's convenient. Do you remember that the same way you remember going to the film? No, it's not even close. So I worry that that medium is is being attacked by technology. Yeah, completely. I keep I keep coming back to this, but it's the exuberant quote. The time you waste on your rows is what makes it so important. The time that you sacrifice, the effort, the the embodiment of the experience that you put into seeing it makes it that much more valuable to you. And streaming, boom, there you go. You know, I talked about it before with Are You Afraid of the Dark, where it's just like you can just stream it now. Boom, 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 boom. Episode. You don't have to wait an entire week. <laughs> to hype yourself up for it. And I agree. And I think that that might be what they were talking about. I agree with you where I don't see the difference between the massive cineplex versus the small theater that, that Vink's kind of addressing. I think they're, they're very similar in a lot of ways. Maybe the quality of movie to me is more what he's talking about because, you know, they clean their aisles too. I mean, I don't get that intimacy that he's referencing, but definitely for sure with the streaming experience, completely removes what a movie should be about. And that's why I still kind of love that they do have some exclusivity. I know with COVID, they kind of remove that where it would go straight to streaming. And I'm glad that we're going back to the movies where there is that at least small period of time where you can hype up a movie, get excited about it and watch it. Even if it's bad, you know, it's like that experience matters. You know, when people pre-order games, it's a big issue because, oh, you're, you know, you're pre-ordering a game. You don't know if it's good or not. Something beautiful about committing yourself to it, getting excited about it, to add that energy to whatever you're experiencing. And yeah, that's gone with streaming for sure. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I could go on about this like for a long time, but I'll go ahead and move us on to the next part of the scene. Um, so what happens is then, as I said, we see we go to a Saturday night uh, scene where we are told by Mr. Kristoff, he tells Pete and Katie in his office. We see that the film case, because this movie is actually on like actual film, which of course is not a thing that's used in projectors like today, but it's, it's in a box, a film box to protect it. And we see the box starting to glow red and lid starts to kind of move a little bit. As this happens, the projector, uh, the film that's in the projector starts to break. You can sort of see there's like a Western film that is on. Uh, we see cowboys, some wagons. There's a handful of people in the theater, not just the old lady, although she is there, but there are some other people, not a lot though, maybe a dozen or so, and the film goes out. So Pete goes up into the projector room, he tells Katie he has an idea, 
And so he goes and loads the you know, Dr. Vink's film into the projector. And Katie goes and tells everybody that we have a new sh- movie to show you guys. If you don't like it, we'll still give you a full refund. So the people that are there, I think it, I counted, tried to count them up. It was about 10 or 11 people. They all agree to stay and, and to see what they've got. Your lady has a great quote. <laughs> Which is great, because this is clearly the thing that she does every night, no matter what. She is in the Rialto watching the movie. She's got like two it. years left, and she's like, I'm spending this at the Rialto, man. <laughs> yep, I, I love it. I love it. Dedication. So anyway, the movie starts up. It is called Nosferatu, the Demon Vampire. Afterwards, everyone's really pumped up. Everyone that saw it. Nobody wants a refund. The old lady basically says, if you show more films like that, you might make, you might have a few more customers. And everyone seemed to be really into the end of the movie. Afterwards, Pete and Katie are both really excited and they hug each other. And (laughs) after they hug each other, Pete says, let's hug again. Uh, It's so transparent. It's so, it's so, it gets all awkward. And, you know, we'll have to wait and see if Pete has blown it for good with Katie here. So as Pete and Katie are sort of awkwardly hugging, we see sort of a door behind them that closes on its own. Very weird. Another situation where doors seem to be doing stuff on their own here. And we also see a shot up in the projector room of the film glowing. Clearly, there's something going on with this film. Now, it cuts real quick to the Midnight Society. We just get a very brief cutout to them all around the fire, sort of reflecting on what just happened. And, you know, Kristen says, oh, just as Dr. Vink predicted, right? Because we find out that their success is going to be assured here. Because Frank actually tells us that the owners didn't sell... So now we return back to the Rialto Theater after this short Midnight Society scene. We see a little bit more of the movie. This time, we see that there is a character named Harker, who is actually named after Jonathan Harker, a character in Dracula. And he is trying to drag the coffin of the vampire into the light. The vampire arrives too quickly. He said in the uh, title cards, because there is no sound, it's says, too late, Harker. And the Nosferatu comes over and bites him on the neck and stands victorious over over Harker. Now, it looks like by this point, things have gotten a lot better for the theater because we see that Katie and um, the Pete are wearing these new green vests. And Kristoff, the manager, seems like he's in a pretty good mood. He is just raking in money based off of Dr. Vink's film. It is at this point that Vink decides to return back to the theater. Remember, he said that once their success was assured, that he wanted his one night a week to show his films. At first, Kristoff seems really glad to see Vink. He basically says, hey, here's the guy that saved our theater. You know, let's make a deal. And Dr. Vink says, well, we already had a deal. You promised to give me one night a week in the theater. Kristoff basically says, listen, I have A-list movies coming in now. I can't give you a night. There's no way. 
maybe a midnight showing on a Saturday. I can't actually give you a whole night, a whole uh, day of the week to show your movies. Aaron Taggart does some great acting here where he looks half crazy, where he's angry, but also kind of laughing about it, but but in like a sinister sort of way. One of my favorite lines, Dr. Vink says, I don't want your money. I don't want your friendship. I want your theater. He also says, one shouldn't make a bargain if they can't honor their commitments. Kristoff basically says, listen, buddy, you're not getting it. There's no way. And Vink basically says, that's where you're wrong, my friend, as he laughs evilly. And the doors, once again, close on their own as Dr. Vink is standing silhouetted in the doorframe as he's laughing. The doors close without anyone seemingly moving them. Katie seems a little bit nervous about this as she ought to be, and Kristoff just sort of blows it off like, ah, what's he going to do anyway? All right, so there's quite a lot there. Um, One thing I'd like to mention is the movie Nosferatu, the Demon Vampire, is based off of the 1922 Nosferatu, the actual movie Nosferatu, and this is more of like a retelling of it that's very stylistically similar to it that they did for the show, for Are You Afraid of the Dark? thing to mention about that is Nosferatu is actually based off of Dracula. At the time that Nosferatu was made in 1922, the uh, Bram Stoker, the writer of Dracula, his estate still owned the rights to Dracula because it had only come out a few decades before this movie. So they went ahead and made the movie, changed the name to Nosferatu, and changed a bunch of stuff about it. It doesn't really follow the plot of Dracula very much at all. But I will say that this type of vampire, which I just refer to as a Nosferatu vampire, the type that is not the slick vampire we've come to know. If you think about Bela Lugosi in the universal horror Dracula that we all sort of picture with the slicked hair and he's dressed as sort of like a like a count or a nobleman and he seems very uh, stylish and very you know put together that sort of vampire is not what we're talking about here we are also not talking about the sexy twilight vampires here either okay we are talking about a vampire that basically looks like a creature. It looks like this white, totally bloodless creature with claws and fangs and doesn't talk, and it is not at all stylish. This is like a a monster that we're dealing with. And to me, that sort of more beast-like version of the vampire is pretty terrifying. Well, the modern version of, of a vampire is basically... You know, you suck blood and you turn the other person into a vampire as well. And so you're basically the same type of person, but you're immortal, right? And so it makes sense that you're going to accumulate wealth. And since the sole way you survive is biting people's necks, you're probably going to be seductive and seduce them as opposed to Nosferatu, where you're going to run away. You know, so I imagine, you know, you'd want to be a vampire that can seduce people into the bedroom or 
whatever scenario, you want to bring them close to you so they can go up, oh, gotcha, you know? So that kind of makes some sense. I, so I'm curious here about Dr. Vink and this bargain. Cause you mentioned Kristoff, right? And how insufferable is he? I mean, I'm, I'm with Dr. Vink here. This is a breach of contract case. You know, he wanted one night, one theater and he couldn't get it. And Kristoff isn't even too, not only is he not, part of the success because of Dr. Vink, he's not only part of the success of using Dr. Vink because he instructed Pete to throw away the video. Pete stored it away and then used it during the Yucatastrophe, another Tolkien reference. When things went, you know, when things are at their absolute lowest, Pete had that video and put it in. So Pete is the reason, Dr. Vink's the reason, Christoph has nothing to do with anything and here he is being all macho. And so I was curious about Dr. Vink, because what agreement did he make with Kristoff in the theater? Is it a deal with the devil? Because, you know, Dr. Vink, he does mention that his, his movies are magic, but he doesn't explicitly say, hey, you're selling this to me, yada, yada. So did you have any thoughts about Dr. Vink? Is this a deal with the devil? One thing that I've noticed about Dr. Vink uh, is that he... If you look at him in other episodes, like The Phantom Cab or The Dangerous Soup, he likes to put people in situations where he thinks that they will fail, uh, and then he has these sort of sinister consequences for it. He does that with the riddles in The Phantom Cab. Um, He does that in The Dangerous Soup, where he tells people not to try it and that sort of thing, and then if they do, they get in trouble. But I think that in this case, I'm with Vink on this one. Because it was a pretty fair bargain. I mean, he basically made the theater successful. He wants the one night, and that's it. Now, maybe he figured that this Kristoff guy was the slimy sort of double dealer. It wouldn't be hard to figure that out just from looking at him. He has he has it written all over his face. So maybe Vink targeted him, knowing that he would try something like this. But, you know, I know Vink's an interesting character because I think he ranges from being a villain to possibly being almost like an anti-hero, depending on how you view his actions. I guess the thing that, that here that you could really criticize is that once his plan goes into action, obviously Pete and Katie are going to get caught up in it, even though Pete was the one that even showed the film in the first place. So yeah, I think I think taking a bargain from Vink is is a pretty bad idea. But if you can hold up your end of the bargain, who knows? So what do you think about Pete's whole uh, "Let's hug again" moment? Was that it? Was that a good move? Was that suave? No, it's super creepy. And wow, she she rejected him. He actually asks her out after that too. But I was expect <laughs> it was like a comedy. It was like, hey, let's hug again. <laughs> let's hold each other. <laughs> Let's kiss each other. Let's, you know, I was like waiting for it to be escalated of like, I got those kind of vibes of like, dude, she's already rejected you. What are you doing? Super creepy. I felt, oh, it was so cringy. I feel bad for Pete here. I, I feel like he just got carried away. Like he couldn't, you know, he just couldn't, he just didn't know what to do. He's, he's a poor guy. He's, we'll see. We'll see if his fortunes improve, I guess here. Okay, so this next part, it's kind of hard to find a place to stop here because the climax of the episode is like a, 
kind of goes is is a pretty long segment uh, because we get into essentially like a big chase scene. Pete is seen uh, watching the movie. He's sitting in the theater watching the Nosferatu movie. He looks like he's studying the movie, trying to see what it is that makes it so interesting to people. And he falls asleep while the movie is on. Now, he's alone in the theater, so when he falls asleep, the vampire actually walks through the screen, turns from black and white to color as he moves through the screen, and steps out into the theater. I always thought this was a really creepy and good moment, this transition from the screen into the real world. They have this like sort of sci-fi horror theme that plays when he goes through the sort of sound effect that's very effective. Pete wakes up to see nobody there. He goes and tells Katie about his, quote, dream that he just had. But as he's doing this, we start to see a point of view shot down the hallway and whoever's point of view we're in, which we find is the Nosferatu is moving toward Mr. Kristoff's office. Meanwhile, we have a pretty good quote here back with Pete and Katie where Pete says, The vampire, though, is clearly stalking Kristoff uh, here. We don't quite get to see it yet, because we cut back to Pete and Katie, and Pete says, I kind of like you. And Katie replies, I kind of like you, too. They're about to kiss, but of course they get interrupted by a scream. They run up to see Kristoff in his office with bite marks on his neck. We actually see some blood, which, you know, for Are You Afraid of the Dark is pretty gory there. We get the two bite marks on the neck with some blood dripping down. And they try the phone. Of course, the phone is dead. Pete and Katie decide, or at least Pete decides, that they should stick together. So they start going out into the theater to try to find a way out. They're headed toward the exit to try to get out of there. As they leave the office, we see vampire fingers curling long claws and nails curling along the door frame which was always very creepy when pete and katie get to the doors they won't open they're locked in and then one of probably the most iconic moments of the episode for me the doors suddenly fly open and the nosferatu is just right in front of them standing right there in the door just in like this uh, this stance where he's just looks terrifying. So they run away, of course, and this leads us through a chase where they go through the theater. They eventually end up in the projector room. And in the room, Pete tells Katie that he has an idea, and he runs out, goes into the actual theater itself. Katie is left behind in the projector room. The vampire is coming after her. He actually gets into the projector room and is right on top of her. He's about to pretty much bite into her when she turns the projector on. And we see the movie start to play. Pete actually walks up to the screen and passes through it into the movie. So we get another transition from color this time into the black and white. And Pete is going to try to get that coffin and move it before the vampire gets into the movie. 
Now, when the projector comes on, the vampire notices, he leaves Katie, he goes down and starts on his way back into the screen. Pete seems to be having some trouble with the coffin, however, and he's not having a lot of luck dragging it. The Nosferatu pops back into the movie, and he's just about to take Pete down whenever Pete realizes that there's a curtain over top of a window in the corner of the room that he's now in. He pulls it down, and light comes in, hitting the Nosferatu and burning him into ashes. Pete picks up his cape, and we see a trail of ashes underneath, and then he's able to walk back out of the screen, and he actually sort of is uh, like sent out. He sort of pops back out of the movie into the theater. Now, at this point, we see, or rather we hear, Dr. Vink, because he is clapping as he is sitting in the theater watching everything that's been unfolding. He says, good job, lad. And we think that everything is good to go. Kristoff comes down, his neck's hurting him, but he seems like he's recovered from the vampire bite. And looks like we're about to get a happy ending. Except, Dr. Vink tells us, And that is where we end Tale of the Midnight Madness, except for a brief return to the Midnight Society, where it turns out that Frank was actually just trying to scare everyone from going to the triple feature, and they end up giving him their tickets. So Frank gives one to Gary, and they end, after putting out the fire, they end the episode saying, it's just a movie, let's go. And they're off to the triple. Uh, Got him. <laughs> yes. So pretty clock wow. ending there from Frank. Totally epic ending. First of all, I got to say, I really connected with Pete in his quest for his girl. I mean, I remember, you know, girls all the time, you know, you're a nerd. Let's date, you know? I mean, that's definitely what happens, right? It's like, of course, I rejected you multiple times. You creep me out asking to hug me. And then it just works out, right, Matt? Like, that that was your experience as a nerd growing up? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's exactly how it goes. Well, I do, I do identify with Pete, and I will say I found out, because I didn't, they never mentioned it in the episode, so I don't know if this is canon or not, but according to IMDb, Pete's last name is Matt. His name is Pete Matt, spelled the same way as my name. So I felt... A connection to him from that uh but yeah i mean listen these guys are you know these two kids are in high school this sure this never happened to me in high school let's put it that way yeah can you imagine you're crushing you going to see nosferatu and just like having a great time yeah it's uh yeah it's not my high school experience needless to say so what was your thought regarding the twist ending because i always like it when are you afraid of the dark has kind of like a you know a darker ending. I'm I'm not always a fan of the happy endings on horror films and I like it when they throw something in there. I thought this was a good one because Pete defeats this monster, you know, he saves the day for now. 
but it leaves you wondering what is going to happen next time. What are these other movies that Vink has? What kinds of creatures are in them? It makes me wonder also, is Pete going to keep working there? <laughs> you know, are him and Katie going to stick around uh, knowing what's about to happen? Yeah, well, if I'm Katie, I'm peacing out because part of the plan was basically, hey, Katie, when you're up there with the projector, I'll be down with Nosferatu. You scream, okay? And then she's supposed to scream when it's ready, right? The plan from Pete was basically, I'll be with Nosferatu. I'll distract him. You load the film and then scream. And then Nosferatu goes up into the booth with Katie. And he almost gets her, right? It's not until Pete actually gets into the film that Nosferatu leaves. So like Pete's plan from the beginning, and we don't know that until we see it, right? It's to have Katie scream to draw Nosferatu towards her. Katie has no idea that was Pete's plan. So I'm like, I'd be mad if I'm Katie. I'm like, what? your plan was to draw Nosferatu to me so you could go into the film? Like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> I get I get it in that it allows him time to bring the coffin and, you know, draw the drape. But like, dude, I mean, you risked her life. It, you know, what if Nosferatu just said, yeah, I'll just go for you. She's done, right? <laughs> oh, man. I mean, I love it. I, I think that it's a, I think that uh, this is a really strong final chase because that's what the whole ending scene is you know it's just this long chase scene essentially it starts off with like the stalking where the Nosferatu is stalking like Kristoff and then we don't quite know where he is but then he shows himself in the doorway and it's just sort of the you know it's all the stuff where he keeps sort of magically opening the doors magically lifting boards off of the doors it's just like really, especially for a kid's show, I think that they did a great job of making it feel like almost like more cinematic. Maybe it's because it's in the theater, but to me, this felt like it was a high stakes ending, you know, so I, I, I'm a big fan and, and I love that Vink buys the theater at the end. And I even really enjoyed Frank punking everybody and getting the tickets. I mean, it sounds like Dr. Vink could have maybe used some of the popcorn money to buy the theater and he could have just done that outright. And I'm, I am curious about, you know, there's no sequel to this, right? I mean, there's no, we don't know what movies he would show. I mean, the people that left the theater, they just enjoyed the movie. It was like a 3d film, honestly, to them. Uh, Nosferatu didn't bite the people in the audience. So it's like, what's the harm? Well, you know what? I was thinking about that. And I think going forward, it, it actually wouldn't be dangerous to stay there because my understanding is that the reason that the Nosferatu came out was because Kristoff broke the deal, right? Because the Nosferatu didn't even go after Pete right away. Pete was just sitting in the theater. The vampire came out of the theater, probably saw Pete right there, but ignored him because he went and went after Kristoff right away. So I think that the reason that this all happened was just because Kristoff broke the deal and Vink set it up. But if he hadn't broken the deal and if Vink had gotten his one night, then probably he would have just kept showing the films and nothing would have happened. Yeah, I think you're probably right. It, it, it was for entertainment. I mean, it's like even Nosferatu just wanted to entertain because he could have otherwise killed the, you know, the old lady in the audience. He didn't do that. What a shame Christoph lived. I mean, he's like, there's no punishment for him, right? It's just, 
I, I, again, I hate wishing harm on people. You know, we've done this before in our previous episodes, you especially with children, but Christoph, he legitimately deserves punishment here and he just wakes up no problem. And it's funny in the phone scene, it, you know, I thought it was kind of funny because they pick up the phone and he says, it's dead while Christoph's head's on the table. And I thought it's dead was also referencing Christoph. That's what I thought because he's so subhuman in this episode <laughs> that I thought that's what that reference was as well. I can't stand Christoph. I... I wish that they had left him get his comeuppance there, but I don't know, maybe that's just an element of it being like a Nick show. They probably were like, you know, you can't do that. But I, um, I would have preferred that too. I I'm with you now. A couple things, um, about some of the actors I wanted to mention. Chris Heyerdahl is the guy that plays the Nosferatu. And I teased earlier that there was a twilight connection Chris Heyerdahl has played hundreds of roles since this Are You Afraid of the Dark. Now, this was only his second credited role ever on IMDb, this performance here as the Nosferatu. His third credited appearance is as a character named Leonid in The Tale of the Thirteenth Floor, which is, of course, another Are You Afraid of the Dark episode. But in the Twilight series, in the Twilight Saga, New Moon... He actually portrayed one of the Voltori. He was Marcus Voltori in that scene where you see all of them sitting in Italy in their court where they all live. So he was one of those guys in there. So he so, do- so Dr. Vink knew. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I had no idea about this. So it's like Dr. Vink knew yes. that the vampire winning was Twilight. He did. And he connected it, man. That's what I, I mean. mean. That's, that's, that's what this Ooh. means. Uh, and then, of course, you know, the, the only other actor I really wanted to mention here, of course, was Aaron Tagger himself. He played a lot of film role, uh, a lot of TV roles um, after this. Again, quite numerous different appearances. Unfortunately, Aaron Tagger uh, passed in 2019. He was 84 years old, so not a bad run there. But Dr. Vink definitely is, for me, is his most iconic role. All right, so I think that leads us to our score on this one. We use a system, which we have used before, where we rate out of 10, and we also think of it in sort of a grade school type of system where, you know, 9 and above is an A, 8 and above is a B, sort of the ground, what these scores mean. I did look after the fact at IMDb, and I have those written down, so I will share those. But when I made my score, I just went off pure just watching. I didn't look at the scores from IMDb first. So this is rated as an 8.6 on IMDb, which I think is criminally low. Makes me kind of angry even to think about it as an 8.6. So, I've never done this before in the history of the podcast, but I am going to rate Tell the Midnight Madness as a 10 out of 10. Absolutely perfect from beginning to end. There's nothing I would change, and that's it. Perfect episode. Like I said, this is my favorite one, so if I'm comparing it to any other episode, it's the best. 10 out of 10. Yeah, and for the listeners, that's important too, because that was part of our scale as well, is that the lowest rating was a 5.0. Highest would be a 
because Are You Afraid of the Dark episodes could never be lower than five. And so 10, I get it. You know, I was kind of shocked that you were going with it, but I understand it. And I gave it a 9.3. I I think that's that's good. I, I do want that episode. That's going to be my 10. I don't know that this is it. I don't have an explicit reason for it, but I'm I'm proud that you found your white whale. I'm proud that you found your your best. And I think especially with our past with with movies, I could get that. You know, we just talked about it in the Clarissa episode about how you want to go to the vampire movie marathon. So this is kind of the the perfect conglomeration. It's got Aaron Tagger in it. It's got vampires. It's got movies. It's got everything you possibly could want. So I'm I'm happy for you that you found your ten. I gave it a nine point three, but. I have no issue with you giving it a 10 at all. 8.6 is an abomination. You know, I think that the, I mean, I think that's a good, I think 9.3 is probably an objectively good score, but for me, it hits like everything that I like, every single thing. I have the nostalgia because I saw it back in the day, possibly when it was first aired. And I have memories of, you know, my cousins watching it with them. So there's that. Then, like you said, vampires. Vampires have always been a big thing for me. When I was a kid, I was obsessed with them. They were my favorite monster. So that was there. It has the tie-in with the old Nosferatu movie, which I love. It has, again, Aaron Tagger, Dr. Vink. Dr. Vink is by far my favorite Are You Afraid of the Dark character. I The movie theater setting is big for me. There's a lot of nostalgia wrapped up in that. And that's only gotten more so because of our movie crew that we used to do in college with our friends that we referenced earlier. So, you know, we have all of those things. Really, I don't think there's anything they could have added that would have made it better or that they could have changed that would have made it better. So, yeah, this is my 10. And this has been my 10 from since 1993. Whenever this one would come on as a rerun, I would get super pumped for it. It was always top of the list. I'm just curious what your 10 is because there has to be one out there for you. I'm holding it, man. I'm holding it. You know, I'm sure I'll find it. I'm sure I will. The fact that this is based off of, you know, a real movie, I I mentioned it already, but you know, based off Nosferatu, I also wanted to point out that Nosferatu turned a hundred this year because it came out in 1922. And I will say the movie gains creepiness the older it gets because when i watch it i think these people made this a hundred years ago and i'm seeing them now but these actors have been dead for what 60 years 70 years i mean who knows and to see that this old like relic of film that's how things are going to be from now on is that we're going to have these old films, the stuff that we grew up watching in the 90s, it already is starting to feel like it's getting old. It's like been 30 years. Imagine if you had something like this, Are You Afraid of the Dark episode? It came out in 1993. It's based off of a silent film that came out in 1922. And then let's say somebody is watching it in the year 2065. You have like 150 years of history there. I mean, it's crazy. So just that idea to me, I thought was fascinating. The other thing to bring up is 
this holds up so well. I mean, you look at the effects, you look at the costumes. Yeah, it holds up so well. And it, it kind of ties in with what I was talking about earlier about the beauty of film and why I love it. Because with a book, it's one author and the author is brilliant. But in a movie, you have a whole crew just for makeup, a whole crew just for costumes, a whole crew just for sound, cinematography, etc. And that just, it's all the best of the artistry in that specific genre contributing to one thing. So it's such a, to me, it's the perfect art form in that way. And in this episode, man, it, it all holds up. It's like, you know, when Pete goes into the film, it's seamless, it's beautiful. And Nosferatu, he's terrifying even today. You know, it's like the Dead Man's Float character. It's just, that'll be timeless. That'll be scary 10,000 years from now when people watch this. And just the special effects, no part of that, I said, oh, this looks ugly. And I can't say that for even something like Star Wars, you know? Go watch Star Wars again. The special effects do not hold up the way that you think they do. In this, I had no issues with it. It's it's beautiful. That seamless transition from Pete going into the theater, perfect. And there's a whole crew for that. I mean, there's a whole crew in charge of that. There's probably a whole crew just in charge of making Nosferatu, making that transition happen. And how special is that? And that's a beautiful part of this episode as well. All right, so we're moving on to the tale of the pinball wizard. So I'm going to start it off going with the Midnight Society gathering here. And David's playing a Game Boy, the old school one, huge, grayish. And Eric comes in and hits the reset button on his game. He's trying to get the high score, trying to beat the game. Here comes Eric hitting the reset button, makes him lose his score. And then Kristen comes in with some pretty <laughs> controversial statements. She says that, I don't see how you guys can get so into these dumb games. I mean, they are just games. This is a story that Gary ends up telling. And he brings up the concept of, what if you had a game where you couldn't just hit the reset button? And if you didn't beat the game, it would beat you. So here we have the conversations about the importance of video games. Do they matter? And obviously the pinball wizard is going to be about a scenario in which you can't just say it's a game. You have to win or lose. And there's no reset, no extra lives. So this is our campfire story that Gary leads us into. And what were your initial thoughts on this, on this campfire story? There's a lot of video game discussion here that I think we can have. Well, first of all, the Game Boy itself is iconic. I mean, this is the old brick Game Boy, the first version of which I had a Game Boy Pocket, which was a slimmer version that they made later. But, you know, this was the the real original one, uh, and I have a lot of memories of that. I had a cousin who had one, still has it, actually. And these are just super nostalgic because they go back right to childhood and the other thing that I'd want to mention from this is that Eric is a jerk. Who comes up to somebody playing a game and hits the reset button? That is not acceptable. And I am actually happy that Eric disappears from the show after this episode. Because this is the finale of season one and Eric is no more after this season game over eric <laughs> i will say i mean i owned a game boy like this there is no actual reset button right you have to turn it off right you have to flick the the power off right but yeah i'm glad i didn't know that but i'm glad eric's gone after that he deserves it 
Um, I'm assuming, obviously, it's convenient to have that. We'll assume for the purposes of this episode that he, he turned it off, right? He turned the Game Boy off or pulled the batteries out or whatever he did. Bye. Bye, Eric. He's one villain. Isn't Kristen another villain here? I mean, she's anti-games here, saying that it doesn't matter if you win or lose. I mean, for me, again, I'm, I'm super competitive. It, it very much matters, just like any other game. Oh, man. No, I agree with you entirely. I mean, Kristen is... This is, this is an unacceptable point of view. You know, we've talked in previous episodes about our battles with getting the ability to play games when we were kids because of whoever, you know, parents or whoever that didn't didn't want you to play games or just in the media. They were constantly talking about how bad games were for you. And I feel like that sort of culture kind of went away. Um, and like recently, I feel like kids today don't have to put up with this like we did back then. There was this general sort of cultural belief back in the 90s that games were would rot your brain or that they were somehow dangerous to kids in some way. Um, there were always senators and people who wanted to like censor video games. Like when Mortal Kombat came out, it was a big thing. Actually led to the creation of the rating system that they use today. Um, because that didn't exist prior to that. But yeah, I, I think the idea of the game not mattering also that she says is kind of ridiculous. Because if you're going to say that winning or losing a video game doesn't matter, then wouldn't you say that about any game ever? If you're playing Scrabble or you're playing football or you're bowling or doing competitive swimming, I mean... Like, it's all, it's all games, you know? These are all things that humans construct for ourselves. So I, I, don't see, I don't see her point. And Gary actually picks up on that theme. You know, he basically agrees, and he's like, yeah, well, it doesn't matter. And that's sort of the whole premise of his story, is that it doesn't matter, but what if it did? Imagine if it did matter, what that would be like. Yeah, not a big fan because th that opening Midnight Society bit, it sort of it sort of sounds like a preachy like something a parent would say, not something that these kids would say. No no kids in the early 90s were sitting around talking about how video games were bad for you. No, it's just outright bigotry. It's like as a human being, you want to succeed in whatever you do. So like for sports, if you miss a shot, you're mad. You you miss a pitch, you're mad. You whiff in volleyball, you're mad. You know, if, if you're coloring outside the lines, you're mad. If you are cutting outside the lines, you're mad. I mean, it's like you want to be successful. So it's just a different type of art form. It's just at this time, it was especially new. So I think here's the bigotry coming in of like, we don't like video games. We want to be mean to them. And so it doesn't mean anything. But in reality, anything you're doing, you should be doing well. And if you're not, you're going to be upset with yourself. And Kristen's the, I think you're right. I think it's like the, you know, the parent bigot new to this concept of video games who just is like, ah, you know, this is, this is meaningless, but obviously I'm going to hold my kids to higher standards in soccer. If they whiff, you know, if they swing at a ball and miss, I'll be upset with them and try to get them better. Or if they miss a pitch in baseball, but video games doesn't matter. It's meaningless. It's like, come on. And nowadays you have video game scholarships even. So it's like, you know, it's, it's grown so much to the point where 
I'm, I'm, and I'm glad it has, right? I'm glad it has, but it's really, it's one and the same. It's just this time it was so new that I think this type of ignorance existed towards video games. All right. So again, Gary ends it and says, let's get into the story by bringing up a game where you can't hit reset, where if you didn't beat the game, it would beat you. So then we go into the main story. The main story here is the character Ross. He's basically introduced in a mall and he's basically a loner gamer because of course gamers have to be loners, but he will do anything to get what he wants. They, they say he's very focused, if you will. And they show him in the beginning gathering quarters. So he goes to a payphone to draw quarters and he gets changed from a wishing fountain where people would throw quarters in a mall and you you make a wish and he's always getting quarters from that. Obviously the quarters are designed because he wants to use them for video games and his dedication to gathering these quarters is so strong that he actually gets into a, a pseudo fight with what I think to be a homeless person. I mean, it's, it's somebody who basically is this random stranger who's fighting him over this quarter or a coin of some sort. And then security sees him from above in a higher floor and kind of shouts down at him. So Ross sees that and says, oh, I got to get out of here. So he goes and hides. He creeps a little bit. We see a picture of a super soaker, which is a very 90s term where it's basically this plastic gun of some sort that holds large amounts of water. You'd pump it up to get air pressure and then shoot water out of it as a water gun. So we know what super soakers are, obviously. In case you don't, I just described it, but you see it in a glass case. They're very distinctive about it, and it will play importance later on. The next shot then is from then, once Ross has escaped the security guard trying to stop the fight, he goes into the shop of a Mr. Olson. And he Ross wants to work for Mr. Olson. Hey, Mr. Olson, you thought about it? Thought about what? The job. I want the job. Yeah, I'm not sure I want to hire any more kids. Mr. Olson, he's a collector of sorts. It seems like he basically is a, he does a refurbs of various antiques. He's a collector of some sort. We don't know exactly, exactly what kind of business he has, but Ross really wants to work for him. And Mr. Olson is hesitant to hire Ross because he's afraid Ross is just going to play pinball the whole time. As Ross is in the store, we find out that Mr. Olson has a pinball machine that is covered in a sheet. It's this really cool pinball machine that, Mr. Olson says there's a collector's item that's missing a piece and it doesn't work quite right. Now, it's important to note there are two pinball machines in this store. One is covered in fire and it's, I, I, I'll refer to it as the new pinball machine. The other pinball machine, which is the most important one, is the collector one that's under the sheet. Eventually, Ross is kind of you know skirting around the store and again, he wants a job and he decides instead of you know trying to do some productive work, he goes to that new pinball machine, puts in a quarter, and starts playing on the new fire fire machine. Not very good if you're trying to get a, a job interview of, of some sort. Mr. Olson gets upset. He kicks him out. He unplugs the machine and says, listen, I got to go to lunch. His 3 p.m. lunch, which he says is not ideal. Let's go. I'm closing up. Why? It's only 3 o'clock. I haven't had lunch yet. Come back in an hour. Wait. This is perfect. Eating lunch at three o'clock ain't exactly perfect. Ross then has an idea. Hey, Mr. Olson, I want to prove to you I'm a good worker. I want this job. You go to lunch and I'll just watch your shop for a little bit. Mr. Olson says, 
okay, but don't interact with any customers. Don't do anything. Just sit here. And especially do not play that pinball machine under the sheet. And so Mr. Olson goes to lunch. And this is, so this is where we're at. We have Ross trying to get a job. We have this, this mysterious pinball machine in the shop and we have Mr. Olson leaving the store. So what are your initial thoughts on Ross and Mr. Olson here? Quick thing about Ross, the actor who plays Gary, who is the guy who's telling this story, the Midnight Society member, that actor's name is actually Ross. The fact that this character is named Ross is is kind of interesting. But anyway, uh, I will say that Ross, I have mixed feelings about Ross, because on one hand, I empathize with him and his desire to play video games and his willingness to like do anything to achieve that. But on the other hand, he's kind of a numbskull because he immediately breaks every rule that Mr. Olson has set out for him. We will see him interact with a customer very soon, and we will also see him just hammering away at the pinball machine immediately. Like, there is not even a split second. In fact, Olsen, there's a shot of him outside the shop where he hears the sounds of Ross playing the pinball machine, and Olsen kind of, like, smiles and chuckles and, like, looks away. So, I would say Olsen... He clearly is setting Ross up because he knows that Ross is going to disobey him. But I will say that Ross begged him for this opportunity and he wouldn't let it go. And Olsen sort of begrudgingly finally says, fine, you can sit here until I get back. Don't disappoint me. So I'm not going to jump ahead to the ending, but, you know, I think that Olsen is justified. Let me put it that way. Man, I can't believe you're siding with Mr. Olson here. So, yeah. So, Mr. Olson says when he leaves, if I can trust you, Ross, you get a job. If you work, you don't play the pinball machine, you'll get a job. If not, you'll be out of here like Steven, who is the former employee. Now, presumably, he's getting fired from the position. But we kind of know, and we'll talk about it later, he wasn't really fired, right? He did the same thing Ross did. And you mentioned the scene when Mr. Olson leaves. And to me, that's horrifying because obviously we know what happens, but Mr. Olson knows this pinball machine. There's something special about it. There's something weird about it. And he doesn't want him to use it. Ross starts using it and he smiles. He is happy about it. He's excited about it. He smirks. So he is all about Ross doing the exact thing he's not supposed to do. Like you said, he's almost luring him in, knowing what's going to happen. And again, I, we're jo- jumping ahead, but to me, that's that's kind of horrifying, knowing that Mr. Olson is not an innocent party here. So I'm surprised that you support him. I, I'm not again. I'm not a huge supporter of Ross because he's not a great employee here. We'll figure that out. But I'm surprised you're so on Mr. Olson's side. Well, you know, I don't think that Olsen, I don't think he really lured him in per se, because Ross goes there on his own and he's like, hey, I want I want a job here. I want a job here. And Olsen tells him no a couple of times and then finally gives in and he's like, "Okay, fine. And he tells him, don't do this. You know, I'm telling you, this is your chance. So is it extreme? Maybe. But I will say that I feel like Ross inserted himself into this situation. 
Um, it reminds me a little bit, though, of, you know, Tell of Midnight Madness in that we have this idea of someone making a deal. And then, you know, Dr. Vink had said back in that episode, you shouldn't make a bargain if you can't honor your commitments. And so I think that's a similar theme where it's characters that say one thing and do another thing. And are the consequences too harsh? Probably. But... They were forewarned, I guess is what I'm saying. See, I'm a lawyer. So it's like when you breach a contract, you're liable for what was the purported bargain. And here, Ross's purported bargain is employment. And if he plays the pinball machine, he's unemployed. So fine, if Olsen wants to fire him, great. We know that's not true. And so that's why I think Olsen's evil. We'll move on because you know I want the listeners to understand exactly what we're talking about. And so, yeah, Olsen goes to lunch if he's even eating. He's probably not. He's probably sitting there smiling, enjoying what's happening. But Ross begins to play this pinball machine. And this is the collector's pinball machine, not the new one, not with the fire. This is the collector's one with the princess and the story that we're about to talk about. And so he's playing this, and then he hears a ring. Oh, hold on. I'm coming. Right. He hears a ring, and here's a customer. And again, Olsen says, no customers, don't deal with them. Ross says no. And this is our first introduction to the character, Sophie, who's played by Polly Shannon. Not Molly Shannon, Polly Shannon. And Ross is immediately in love with her. Is Mr. Olsen here? Uh, no. Can I help you? I left my music box here. It's supposed to be ready today. It is? Oh, yeah, sure. It is. Uh... And she is there to collect her music box. She gave Mr. Olsen a music box to fix, presumably, repair in some capacity. And Ross represents himself as an employee, which, again, he's not supposed to do. But he represents himself as an employee and says, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. And he goes to find the music box and he pulls out the music box. And basically, it's a throne. It's a chair. And eventually, Sophie quizzes him about it, finds out he has no idea what she's talking about. Has no idea if it's fixed or not. Ross admits, yeah, I have no idea what's going on. I'm just standing in here. Sophie says, okay, that's fine. I'll come back later. And again, Ross, you know, there's a scene where basically he gets the support ticket, essentially the receipt from Sophie and says, oh, you're Sophie. I'm Ross. Nice to meet you. They've established their crush in. They like each other. And so it's an interesting romance. Thanks, Ross. No problem. And after Sophie leaves, Ross decides to do the right thing, right? And he goes back to play the pinball machine. And then what ends up happening is this montage, essentially, of him playing the pinball machine. Again, snapshots. They make it seem like he's playing this for days. You know, We have no idea how long he's playing it at all. But he mentions things like, princess and tiara and the throne and things he needs to do he mentions water at some point and then he loses he loses the game he doesn't accomplish what he needs to accomplish so he's sad and he's like okay i quit i lose lost the game he leaves the shop and then he walks into a mall that's empty it's nighttime it's closed so he, he's been playing for who knows how long. Everyone's gone, and he's by himself. And so we've entered this new world where presumably maybe it's just a closed shop. 
is he playing pinball or a video game? Okay, and what I mean by that is, he's, like you said, when he's playing the pinball machine, he's saying all these things out loud, like, that he needs to do in the game, like, oh, I need to get the princess, I need to find the tiara, I need to do this and do that. And to me, this sounds like a video game, not a pinball game. Because obviously a pinball game, yes, some of the tables, especially nowadays, have things that will get triggered by hitting different points, and you have like little missions and whatnot. But this was an old collector's pinball table. So it probably was a pretty basic setup, and it certainly wouldn't have a whole bunch of sophisticated electronics in it or anything like that. The plot of the game he's describing sounds to me almost like you're playing Legend of Zelda on the NES or something like that. So I think they sort of crossed their wires here with, are we talking about pinball or video games? Even in the opening, it's a Game Boy. It's not pinball. So I, that's a little bit weird. I didn't really notice that as a kid, because I do remember watching this as a kid a lot, and it, it's one of my favorites from from when I was a kid. But watching it now, I kind of wondered about that. I have something else, but I'll let you see. Do you have any... You, what were your thoughts about, like, if it was the terminology they were using? Did that make any sense for a pinball? No. Yeah. <laughs> and I think you're right. It was probably a, a game of some sort. Um I wasn't a big pinball guy because honestly, it costs a lot of money to play pinball. So I, I could see a game maybe where you have to collect those things. Um, and as you hit certain spots on the pinball board, it lights up or something like that, but not a full story. I mean, why not just do an arcade game? I mean, that, that makes far more sense, but maybe pinball at that time was like the thing. And that's what people could connect with. The point is there's a game that is connected with, that that must have been the most popular one, but yeah, I never had the the coinage to play a pin. I mean, it was like seventy five cents for one pull, and it's like sometimes you know pinball machines you'd hit certain things and it would just automatically knock you down the middle where you couldn't hit it. It's like there was no way to win. So you know, I I would have much preferred like a golden axe game with like pseudo plot or something like that. I think you're completely right on that point. Yeah, I wasn't big into pinball either. I always felt like. To play the pinball machines, you had to be good at pinball. Like, you had to already know what you were doing because they were so expensive. And if you were good at pinball, like, guys would go on those machines for a long time. You, you could make it last if you really know what you're doing, but I was never like that. And I mean, honestly, to me, the pinball didn't look as exciting as like the actual video games in the arcade. So if the, like you mentioned golden Axe, if there was a golden Axe cabinet, I was there. I was not at the pinball machine. It's a, it's sort of a nitpicky thing. I still think this is a really fun story, but that's just something that I noticed. One other thing. I want to interrupt you though. I was good at pinball 3d pinball on the windows. I played that game nonstop. I mean, non-stop. that was my jam. Yes. But again, even in that game, there are certain things you hit, automatic loss. Agreed. And so it's like, if you're paying money for that, no you way. can't do that. can't do that. So another thing that's big for me here is that it's set in a mall, uh, which again, super nostalgic. I don't know if the culture is there these days. I don't know what kids do anymore. I, I've lost touch completely. But, you know, back in the 80s, 
90s, even 2000s, you know, pretty much all through my life, you know, growing up through high school, you know, mall culture was a really big thing. It's where people hung out. It's where the arcades were. It's where the movie theaters were. So, you know, I think I may have talked about this before, so I won't go too deep with it. But this idea of being in the mall alone when it was closed, to me, was both fascinating and kind of terrifying. Because you think about how big the mall is. Normally, it's filled with life. There's people everywhere, shops, uh, restaurants, and a lot of stuff's going on. It's bright. The signs of the stores are lit up. But then you're you're there after hours. Everything's shut down. It's quiet. It's dark. The gates are down over the storefronts. It would be a really eerie thing to be in a mall with no one else there. But on the other hand, it's kind of cool in that exp- imagine exploring a place like that all to yourself, especially when you were a kid. When I would go to the mall... Yeah, I would think of this episode. I thought about this episode a lot growing up because it was so iconic to me. I Listen, I gave Tell Midnight Madness a 10. This is not getting a 10, but as far as the nostalgia factor, this is through the roof for me, and I love it. I love all that part of it. I would think about what would it be like if there was a mall that was close, the one that I would normally go to, which you have been to because it was the one next to the the movie theater we went to. I went to that mall my entire life from when I was a little kid up until like even now sometimes. And I would think, what would this be like if if it was Pinball Wizard and I was here and that was happening? I actually would think about that. So to me, that's that's really cool. Yeah, mall culture was everything, man. It's like, We didn't have, I mean, first of all, we've talked about it. We didn't have consoles the way that people do. So for us to play games, we had to go to the mall. And my family actually had a, it was a Friday night. We'd get pizza at the mall. Antonio's Pizza was a a nice, round, huge slice of pizzas. And we'd get like $20 to go to Aladdin's Castle, the arcade, and... We could just spend it, and it was the best time. That was how we got to play video games. Like, my kids now get games 10 times better than that just in a game pass. That didn't exist. And especially if you were competitive, like in Mortal Kombat, or if you wanted to do co-op, you had to go to the arcade to meet people to play against them. And, like, in Mortal Kombat, you put your quarter on to say, I'm next. You know, it's like, I'm next. It's like a, a street ball type of scenario. It's like... Mall life was everything for that because you didn't have consoles. You didn't have the internet. And so that's what you had to do. And I wish the episode really harnessed on that. For whatever reason, they they put it in a random collector shop with pinball. I would have loved that experience to, to go back to the arcade and to really make it about that because that was my experience really was in, in the big arcades Yeah, and you you sort of touched on something else important there. Like, nowadays, if you want... Well, we get all of our news through the internet. So what I mean is, if there's, like, a new movie coming out, oh, the trailer drops online. If there's a new game coming out, you get an email from GameStop, and it's like, hey, these games are coming out. Or or on social media, you see a post on Sega uh, or Nintendo's um, Twitter, But like back then, pre-internet or in early internet, 
pretty much the whole way through when we were in school, I feel like. How did you find out about that stuff? A lot of times you didn't even know it was coming out. You would go to the mall and then you would see it and it would just be there. You would go into GameStop. We didn't know, unless you were a rich kid and you had a Nintendo Power subscription or something. We didn't, which if you don't know what that is, it was a magazine. It It was a thing called a magazine. People would get them delivered to their house and they would have articles in them that you could read. But anyway, a lot of game companies had their own magazines and if they were expensive though for kids to afford. So a lot of us didn't have them. So, I mean, I didn't know that a game like, let's say, like GoldenEye, I didn't know that was coming out. Going to the mall wasn't just to buy things. At least for me, it was, and like you said, it was also social in the arcade or with your friends. And it was also kind of how you discovered things because otherwise you wouldn't even know that it was out there unless you went out and saw it there. Yeah, and the games are not just arcade games or even console games. I remember at the end of my arcade experience, it was PC games. I I didn't have a PC that could run stuff, really. It's like, that wasn't a thing. And so it's like, StarCraft, Counter-Strike. I had to go to the arcade. They had the PCs there, and I would play against other people there. It's like, imagine playing Call of Duty Fortnite. And you had to go to an arcade to do it. Like, that's what we had to do because you didn't have it at your home. I mean, you didn't have the the computer or the internet or the capability to do it. And even if you did, it was the worst internet imaginable. And so LAN at the arcade was better. So it's like it's a completely different world. But again, it's that appreciation that we had for it because it was so scarce for us. And now it's so abundant. It's like... I feel like no one appreciates, at least the new generation, will will never have the appreciation that we had for the games that we had. It's impossible. It really is. It's strictly impossible, given the amount of games freely available today. No, agreed. And I mean, I, I know this is supposed to be about Are You Afraid of the Dark, not about video games. But I mean, this is too big for us. And the scarcity is really what makes it key in, in the sense that also, like how in the last episode about the movie theater, I was talking about how the experience of going to the theater is so important to film. And I feel like that's a similar thing with games where you don't get the same feeling, the same rush, the same adrenaline, the same endorphins from downloading a game onto your system, downloading the update, playing it on your couch. Compare that to finding out that a game is coming out. You know, maybe you pre-ordered it. Maybe you didn't even know, like I was just saying, and you actually just walk into the store and bam, here is this awesome game that you didn't even know was existed. You discover it, bring it home with you, You get excited over it. You put it in. There's no patch to update because that didn't, that wasn't a thing. You just put it in and and, and you play it and you have this great experience or you play in the arcade and and you meet people, you have competitive matches, cooperative matches. There's just the feel, the sounds, the lights of the arcade. It's not just about let me get the game and play it. 
like, let me download it and play it. There's a whole experience surrounding it that is missing now. And to me, that's just something you can't get. You can't replicate, really. I mean, you can still kind of do it now, but it's not It's not the same. Could, because those arcades aren't, arcades aren't what they used to be. No, it's all about tickets and stuff now. Yeah. I mean, it's like, take Golden Axe. Like, Golden Axe, if you have a Switch with an internet subscription, you can play it. You have unlimited continues, reload, nonstop. Play it as long as you like till you win. Back in the day, you'd have a certain amount of coins, right? You'd go in the arcade and say, okay, what do we want to play? Let's play Golden Axe. You'd have like 10 tokens. And then after that, you're done. You're done for the month. <laughs> like You're not going back to that game. So if you want to use it on Golden Axe, you want to bring more people in because it'll make it easier. So you're like trying to recruit people. And it's like, oh, Sophie's gone after four tokens. Cause she's out. It's like, and then you don't play it again for another month. And it's like, okay. So the hype around beating one game, I mean, you might spend a lifetime trying to like Simpsons, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, even. And I, I, I played the new Shredder's Revenge. Great game. We beat that within a week. Back in my day, it would take, I, I never beat it. You don't have the money to do it. Like you could spend years doing it. You know, things like TMNT, Simpsons, X-Men, all those games. It's like you have a limited amount of tokens. You better do the best you can. And if not, you come back next month and try to do it again if you want to waste your tokens. So it's like a, it's like every game was a white whale. It's like every game was an adventure. Every game was a, a huge challenge. And so it's like to beat that game meant so much. Now it's like you get an achievement, but <laughs> it's nowhere near the accomplishment of if you like... And I never did it, but if you actually went in with a set amount of tokens and beat a game in the arcade, I mean, I can't imagine a better high than that. <laughs> like, I, I've never done it, but I can't imagine a better high than that as a kid if you actually pulled it off. Yeah, I never did. Um, well, actually, no, I did. I did once at a, at a Dave & Buster's uh, with one of my friends. It's probably late middle school, early high school. Time Crisis 2. If you never played the Time Crisis series, it's a light gun type uh, series where you have, you know, a plastic gun that shoots at the screen and you just shoot bad guys. And yeah, we went through the whole thing. So that was the one time that I ever did that. And it, it was epic beyond. And, and here's the thing. It's not like we just decided we sat on our couch one night and we were like, oh, let's download Time Crisis and just play it till we win. We have unlimited continues. We had to get his dad to take us to the arcade, you know, first off, which was a whole thing to just get a parent to take you to a place. You had to get there. Then we had to like save up money, you know, for however much we thought we would need to beat this thing. And then we had to commit to spend our money until we beat the game. And you don't just do that uh, when you're in eighth grade without some serious commitment. That's a big investment because you're investing. That's your, those are your funds. You know, it's like investing your emergency fund in stocks or something. It's like, that's all we got, man. And it's funny you mentioned time crisis. Like one of the best moments I had as a kid is it was like a water park that was kind of going under, but they had an arcade and it's the first time I've ever seen it. Unlimited play. And so guess what game we played? Time Crisis. 
and it was unlimited play. And so we're at this water park with these cool water slides and wave pool and all that. We just play time crisis the whole time. I was like, I can't believe we have unlimited play. Like, what is this concept? Like, how cool is that? And now that's the standard. I could talk forever about this. (laughs) We are here to talk about an episode about video games. And Ross is now in a video game. I'll spoil it. We're in a video game here. He's in this pinball world. The mall is completely dark. It's closed. And there's this creepy phone call. And a voice says, Got an umbrella. Got an umbrella? And then it rains quarters in the fountain. And so he's got his unlimited tokens or whatever. He's in the game. He has to win it, right? And so this begins the pinball wizard, right? Ross is in this pinball universe. He's doing this pinball quest and trying to survive, trying to get out in whatever way he can. And so the first thing he does, he runs into two security guards. I'll put that in quotes. They kind of look like mannequins. They're kind of odd. One grabs him and he pulls away and it actually rips the arm off the mannequin. And it's like a smoky dust. So obviously it's not a person, right? So it's some kind of mythological creature. I'm not entirely sure what it is at the time and ends up being, there's a whole army of these security guards that attack him. And then Up above, on the second floor, this princess, our Sophie. So the Sophie from the store, the customer, is now a princess. And she shouts down for Ross, asking for help. Help! Help! Sophie? Ross! The tear! It's a tear from the vault! And then she reaches over the edge of the second floor of the mall and drops down something. It's a key for Ross to pick up. Ross fights off the guards with water and ends up taking the key, rushing to try to find out, hey, where's this vault at? He finds some mall lockers and he starts opening them up one by one, trying to find the tiara. So he opens the first locker and the first thing that shoots out is some kind of green ooze. It's like a, a broccoli puree. That's how I saw it or something like that. His second attempt, he opens a locker air blows in his face. The third attempt, he opens it up, is a hair clip. It's not a tiara, but it's a hair clip. It's kind of close. I mean, it, it goes on a girl's head, so it's similar. Ross takes that, and then he takes that hair clip. It leads him up to the second floor through an escalator. And then it gives him like a level up music. Like you, you beat the first level, you've moved up to level two. And then the hair clip turns into the tiara. And so Ross has apparently beaten level one of whatever this this pinball game is. And he's now on level two. So with the lockers, that weird slime, it's just sort of... I wondered if that was just like a nod to the fact that this is Nickelodeon. Like he was getting slimed. Because of course that was a common thing that would happen. That people would get slimed. As far as the guards that he fights off with the water... I thought it was kind of neat how when he pulled the arm off the one that they that it like smoked. I do think that they're an odd uh, choice of enemy because the the rest of the levels are fantasy themed. So there's going to be characters that belong in like a knights and wizards type of environment. Um, these guys were almost like robots, so I thought that was a little strange tonally. But yeah, this first level. Pretty easy. 
to be honest with you. He didn't have a lot of challenges other than getting slimed. He passes through it pretty easily. Now, one thing that we will see is throughout this entire thing, Sophie basically is a cheat guide. She pretty much tells him at every juncture what exactly he needs to do in order to... It's basically like he's reading cheats online, like a walkthrough. She is the walkthrough, pretty much. And she's going to tell him, oh, you need to get the tiara, you need to do this or that. Kind of, She kind of reminds me of an NPC, uh, a non-player character that you would encounter in like a role-playing game. What I mean is, in those sorts of games, you have characters that often... They will have, you will talk to them, and they will have set dialogue. They will have certain things that they say at certain times, and they can't say anything else, because they only have so much dialogue programmed into them. I feel like even when Ross is trying to talk to Sophie, she is often just stating, this is the thing we need to do, this is the thing we need to do. So she kind of reminds me, of you talking to other characters in games that act as basically just to give you information. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we talked about it a bit about Ross playing the pinball machine. I mean, there's no context for any of the game, so he has no idea. So I understand the transference of him from a pinball machine into this magical world of the pinball machine. But if that were me, I'd have no idea what... like. What, what am I doing here? Like in that montage of him playing the pinball machine, he mentions water. I have no idea why, right? We have no concept of it. My, my theory is that it's basically water with electronics. It would ruin electronics. That must be the theme. It's never explained. And so we have no idea. So imagine playing that pinball game and there's this purported story. And now you're in a real life version of the game. You're like, what am I supposed to do? I'd be completely clueless. And so I'm glad she's here because it's like, I have no, I would have no idea what to do. And so, yeah, Sophie's there to come in and say, Hey, do this, do this, do this. And it gets worse from here. It gets far worse from here in terms of Sophie being the NPC. Yeah. I I definitely jumped ahead with that because I wrote that down actually in the next part, which is level two. Uh, And I think we see a lot more of that. But um, speaking of which. So in level two, Ross sees Sophie and he chases her into this new area, a hallway, basically. And Sophie, she's running. Ross is following her. It leads him straight to this creepy witch. (laughs) So it's like, why is Sophie baiting him into this? I have no idea. But Ross follows her. Trust her. Here's this creepy witch. And then Sophie ends up being taken to the executioner. The creepy witch confronts Ross and ends up blowing him away. So kind of like in the locker where there's air that blows him away. The witch blows him away, knocks him over. The tiara he had gets knocked over. The witch takes it. Obviously, it must be important of some sort. And then the witch vanishes with the tiara. Then Sophie, out of nowhere, tells Ross where to get this music box. Now, again, we have no idea why he needs the music box. We have no idea how he hears her saying that. Because again, she was taken away by the executioner. But somehow Ross hears Sophie saying where the music box is. And it's, it's incredibly skeptical because we then later learn Sophie is tied and gagged by the mouth, right? 
the executioner gagged her by the mouth so she can't speak. So I have no idea how Sophie communicated with Ross, but I guess Ross had to know somehow where the tarot was. And then Ross sees Sophie with the executioner tied up. And then here we go with the executioner chasing Ross in our first big action sequence here with the executioner and Ross. So the witch is super creepy. Really good job with makeup and costume there. The way that Ross sort of runs into her and gets blown over and she takes the tiara, I kind of wonder. So to me, this reminded me, and maybe he could have done better and avoided this somehow. But to me, this kind of reminded me of like an unskippable cutscene. You're playing a game and something happens that you can't stop. It doesn't matter how how good you do or whatever. It's a thing that's that will always happen no matter what. And I feel like here, the witch, I feel like it was almost part of the story for her to get the tiara. Because then later on, we will see that he recovers it. But um, maybe there's a way he could have played better to beat that part without getting knocked over and having it stolen. I'm not sure. But the witch is something that I always remembered. I thought she was, I thought she was pretty creepy. Yeah, the witch was super well done, super creepy. And we're not done with her yet, so <laughs> we got to stay tuned. So again, Sophia told Ross where to get the music box again, th- magically. But Ross now knows where it is, and so the executioner is chasing him, and Ross ends up finding the music box. And so the witch, who had taken the tiara, is now trying to put the tiara on her head. Obviously, there's some significance to her being crowned queen, princess, whatever it is. But before she could put the tiara on, the music box is activated. And then it makes the tiara disappear from her. And we have no idea where it went. It just disappeared. And it ends up appearing in a random part of the mall where they stumble upon it. The witch, in trying to get the tiara, Ross throws some marbles that he had in his hand on the ground. The witch ends up stumbling over it <laughs> and in a an oddly i guess funny scene ross says steerike and he does a fist pump in the middle of this huge battle again executioner chasing him witch trying to put on the tiara does a fist pump strike got the witch again we're fighting over the tiara the music box and then here comes this evil lord and takes sophie hostage so this is where we're at Eventually, Ross ends up getting the tiara and then moves to level three. So Sophie's hostage. We're going to level three. The witch has fallen on marbles. There's still this executioner floating around. And this is where we're at in the story. For whatever reason, the marble thing, I always remembered very clearly. Maybe it is because it's kind of funny, but the big evil guy who comes out to capture uh, Sophie, the lord... He's your big boss. He's your final boss in a video game that you have to defeat to win the game very clearly. Ross is so bad at picking up the tiara. When they see the tiara, it is like on the ground and it's sort of moving. So he has to reach down and try to grab it. And it's like sliding along the floor and he attempts to grab it three or four times before he finally is able to get it. Like, it's just, it's like he can't get the timing down. I don't, I don't know what his problem is, 
if he's so good at video games, he should have better reflexes than that. So Ross remembers that pinball game. He understands what he has to do. Again, even though he failed in that pinball game, he remembers he has to crown Sophie with a tiara on the throne. These are the pieces. I'm sorry, I have to, to cut in here. Because I wrote this down. And this is, we're now at level three, okay? This is the last level of the game, essentially. And it's just in this scene that Ross says, and I quote, I remember this. It's the pinball game. So, wait a second. Like, he's been through all of this, right? The tiara, the marbles, the robots, the witch, the executioner, Sophie is the princess, the music box. He's been through all this, the evil lord, and he just now has come to the realization that he is in the pinball game. I just wanted to point that out. I'm it's sorry. It's like you I... said, Ross is not the brightest, right? I mean, he said that <laughs> at the very beginning. He's not the brightest. He is you not. Know? We're seeing it now, yeah. unfortunately. So again, Ross remembers what he has to do to win. He's got to crown the princess on the throne with the tiara. That's how he wins the game. And so it turns out that the music box that Ross has, again, it's a throne. We remember that from the beginning. When Sophie first came into the shop, it's a throne. And so... The throne he takes out of the music box turns out that's a throne. So it gets re- it gets really big, like an actual throne, and Ross sits in it. He sits in the throne for whatever reason. Like again, Sophie's got to be the one crowned. Ross thinks, "Hey, I'll sit in this throne for whatever reason." Uh, the throne ends up taking him on its journey. It, it just moves and travels him right to the evil lord with Sophie, and. Unfortunately for Ross, he's he's now in the throne with the evil lord. Evil lord puts him in an elevator, hits the down button. So Ross is going down several floors, and then the evil lord has the throne. Again, he's captured Sophie, and he's got the tiara. Ross has lost everything. And so Ross's plan is to somehow save Sophie from this evil lord before the evil lord can do what he needs to do. And so there was a mace earlier on. Ross takes the mace. Again, I had mentioned the Super Soaker box before. This is where it comes into play because he breaks the glass to get the Super Soaker. And we don't know what he's planning to do with that, but he has the Super Soaker. He's ready to fight the Evil Lord. It's kind of funny how the Evil Lord just sort of stuffs him in the elevator and then just like sends him down. I always thought that was pretty great. That is a slight little bit of, hey, we're in a mall, remember? Because uh, I remember um, as a kid, I liked to actually just like go up and down the elevators. There was this one in the middle of the mall that had glass on the one side so you could see it going up and down. In this case, though, it's not awesome for Ross. No, here, here's what I wonder then. At, at this point where he gets sent back to the beginning, did he lose? And now he has to restart? I guess not, because because when he goes back, things are still going, like, they're still going on. It's not like the game reset. So then it makes me wonder, does this all, is this another thing that, like, with the witch getting the tiara, does this always happen? Or could he have avoided it? You would think it would lead to like a loss condition because he got caught by the evil Lord. But 
it seems like all it does is just send them down a, a couple of levels. Well, as I'm, I'm like with every other movie, I'm assuming the evil Lord is giving a speech. You know, he's like, I got you. And you know, he's talking for whatever reason. Like he could literally throw her on a throne, put the TR on whatever. He's like, Nope, I'm going to give my big speech. I'm assuming that's what he's doing. Cause it gives Ross the perfect opportunity to load up and get back. And here's his redemption arc. He goes back up with his super soaker to confront the evil Lord. And he says, I don't know what's going on here. And I don't know what you are, but if this is some kind of game, you're playing with the wrong guy. Cause I never knew. Again, I find that line hilarious. Cause he literally lost this exact game. Okay, prior to him entering the darkness of the mall, he lost the game. So it's like he did lose the game. And in the new pinball machine, he lost as well. And Mr. Olsen pulled the plug from that game as well. So it's like there's not one moment in this entire episode that he's won in, right? I mean, if you're a gamer, has he won in any aspect at all? Hasn't gotten the job, hasn't gotten the girl, hasn't won the game. What, what is he talking about here? <laughs> I don't know, man. It's like false bravado. He he just has no he has no sense of his own his own uh, failure, I guess. But I no, I don't see it. He's he's failed at everything that he's done so far. And I mean, and without Sophie telling him what to do, he wouldn't have even gotten this far. If it wasn't for typical evil villain behavior, the witch could have killed him. The evil Lord could have killed him. Just got the tiara on on Sophie. So, yeah, he's he's lucky he's even still around. Yeah, he's got huge plot armor here. He's still finding a way to mess everything up. Anyway, he gets a super soaker. Again, we have no idea how it even got filled with water. I'm assuming he went to a fountain at some point, filled it up. Again, why the super soaker was filled with water, we have no idea. But he just... Again, the army of the evil lord, he just vaporizes with the super soaker. He just, he shoots them with this water, they're gone. They vaporize. Again, we're talking about, the only thing I can think of is electronics. Water blows them up. That's all I can think of. But for whatever reason, water is the, it just vaporizes everybody. And then finally, we get the final battle with Ross and this evil lord. And so they fight back and forth. Eventually, the Evil Lord knocks off the Super Soaker from Ross, so he's defenseless. The Evil Lord's won, but then the twist comes in the final moments of Ross's life. Okay, he came prepared. He has a sidearm (laughs) Super Soaker, right? He has a sidearm water gun that he pulls out, and we don't actually... If you look at the scene with the Super Soaker, if you look at the very bottom of the frame, there is potentially a sidearm in that glass. So I, I, there is a possibility he had it, but he came prepared because he's a gamer. And so he pulls it out. He's got a sidearm. Boom. Shoots the evil Lord. The evil Lord gets vaporized and he's essentially one. He gets his kiss from Sophie and which is, you know, what his character wanted from the very beginning here. And he crowns Sophie on the throne and he wins the game. Congratulations, Ross. You are the winner. You've beaten the game. Well, first of all, regarding the sidearm, I think that it's implied that he just 
materializes the sidearm on his like out of his own mind because he tells the evil lord before he shoots him with the sidearm quote when it's real you can make your own rules so i guess he just decided okay now i have a sidearm and he shot him with it i don't know that's that's my thought but pretty good showdown the evil Lord is very, like, stereotypical in the way that he acts and talks and everything. Like I said, not the the biggest Ross fan ever, but, you know, we have sort of a happy ending here. I'm glad to see that he got the girl, that he won the game, that basically everything's going to be fine, and that Ross has sort of conquered his obstacles here. So it's, it's a pretty good ending. Are you ready to, to go on to scores? Yeah, for sure. So the IMDb rating of... Oh, <laughs> we're not done. We're not, we're not done. done here. Yeah, but are here. you afraid of the dark twist? You see, you see, at the end of the game, he teleports right back to the beginning. And then there's Mr. Olsen, the shop owner, looking down on him. And in the creepiest voice imaginable, he starts cackling. I won! Shouldn't be back here. <laughs> Maniacally. And he says, I hope you enjoy your free games. You'll be playing them forever. Whew. The last shot of this episode is a giant pinball coming down from an escalator to get Ross because Mr. Olson had put it into play. Wow. I mean, what a twist here. I mean, he's he's won the game and, and then hasn't. And I'm thinking, what about Sophie? I mean, is Sophie stuck in the game? Is that is that something? Like, why was she in the game? I'm like, oh, I mean, this we've talked about this before, but I'm like, that's messed up, man. I mean, this is an eternity of being in this game. His life is ruined, and Mr. Olsen's laughing and having a great time. I mean, this is what I was talking about in the beginning when Mr. Olsen knows he started the game on his lunch break and he's he's smiling. This guy is evil. He knows Ross playing this is going to lead to hell, essentially, right? I mean, it's an eternity of this. He's going to lose his soul, not his job, a soul, and he's fine with it. And so it's like, that's how is Mr. Olsen not evil? Right. And you defended him a little bit. So I'm curious to hear your thought. Again, I'm not a fan of Ross, but I'm curious to hear your posit on this. No, I mean, Olsen's evil, no doubt. I mean, you know, I, I think, uh, yeah, like Dr. Vink is evil too. But one, I always like villains. And two, I think that, you no, know, it's completely unjustified as far as like the magnitude of it. I'm just saying that. In this sort of devil's bargain kind of way, Olsen technically told him not to do it, so that's basically what happened. It's kind of like Vink in the movie. It's not really a fair proportional punishment, but it fits the logic of a deal with the devil, basically, and I think that's sort of what we see here. I think that... It's a really good twist because that really stuck with me when I saw that as a kid because I was like, man, he he's really stuck in there. As far as um, 
Polly Shannon goes, as far as Sophie goes, I don't think she has anything to do with any of this. I think that it's just in his mind, he created her as the princess because he was in love with her. But she honestly, I got the sense in that scene at the shop that she wasn't even necessarily, I don't know if she was into him or not. Maybe she was, but so, you know, in the earlier scenes, I mean, she goes in to get the music box. She doesn't even get it and she leaves so I feel like that's not really her. I don't think she's in the game. I think the real Sophie is just at home after going to the mall and this kind of creepy kid tried to hit on her. She I don't think I don't think that she really has any knowledge or anything to do with what's going on. I think that it's just you know that's the princess cuz that's Ross's like image of the princess, but now maybe he'll meet Steven in there, right? the other employee who mysteriously disappeared. I mean, he obviously had the same fate. Yes. So I'm curious. I mean, maybe Steven was the evil Lord, you know, we don't know, but I think that's, I think that's, yeah, very interesting. And I like your interpretation of that, where he projected the princess. Cause sometimes in, you know, books or video games, you might project the heroine or whoever is someone in real life. So that makes a lot of sense to me that he would do that. So then, of course, we do have a little Midnight Society scene at the end there as well. Yeah, so, I mean, honestly, Kristen here is, like, loving it. Because it's like, <laughs> he gets his wish. He gets to play video games all day. That's that's what you're playing video games for, right? You know, this is the, the happy ending. You know, it's like, of course, if you play video games, you must want to be in there for eternity, of course. You, you don't, you don't want to work a job. Or have a relationship with somebody. You just want to play video games all day. So she's like, this is what video games are. So she's super excited. And yeah, at the end of the day, the kids, you know, they're they're at the Midnight Society. And they're basically, you know, they're playing hot potato with the Game Boy. Here you go, Dave. Still want to give it a go? Oh, no. I think I've outgrown this. It's all yours, Frank. <sighs> it's okay. Uh, you got a Kiki. No, you got it. Um, how about you got it, Gary? Since they're all afraid to, to hold it, because heaven forbid, playing a video game will lead you to be stuck in the video game forever. And then Gary hits us with this line that says, whoever's got the game, just make sure the game doesn't get you. And so, it's again, it's it's centering on this theme of the game conquering you and addicting you and controlling you versus you engaging the game as though you're not able to control yourself as though you're not able to regulate yourself as though video games are somehow this demonic device of some sort that like conquers you you know it's like again i can't you know knowing how i grew up and my parents that's how they saw video games i mean they saw video games as these devices that basically cast a spell on you and controlled you and that's how I think this episode ends. It's basically saying like avoid video games. They may control you and you may never get your freedom back. Yeah. That's what I took from that too, which of course I did not like. I, um, I, I did notice that Gary is the one who ends up with the game boy at the end. And it makes me wonder if he's sort of pulled from Frank's playbook. Well, actually chronologically this episode came first, but we saw in, in the Midnight Madness that Frank 
used his story to essentially get the movie tickets away from the other members um, because they were afraid. So I wonder if Gary used this to score himself a Game Boy because now they're all afraid of it. And he's like, ha, suckers. Like, that's probably what he's thinking later. But, and actually in the one, in the Midnight Madness, you know, Gary is the one that Frank gives the other ticket to. So it makes me wonder if this is a thing that these guys do, you know, to try to scare the younger members to get their stuff. But yeah, he says all that stuff that, that is very negative. And yeah, it's annoying. I remember even as a kid, it was annoying. Like when I... Because I really liked this episode, but when I would watch that, you know, some of those parts, mainly the two Midnight Society parts, it was that whole idea of, like you said, that the games are dangerous or whatever. So not not a huge fan of that part of it. All right. So we're getting into the ratings here. All right. So for our ratings, right, we're going to be doing the same thing uh, as with the last one. And the IMDb, Internet Movie Database, score for The Tale of the Pinball Wizard is an 8.1. Now, again, I scored this before looking at that. So this one is a little bit tough because I love the idea of him being in the game. I love the twist ending with him getting stuck in the game. And I love all the stuff that happens throughout with him being in the mall, him having to kind of like play a video game in real life, essentially, and go through all of this. The idea of beating the game at the end, even though it, it turns bad, is is cool. Just the idea that you could beat a game in real life like that. So there's a lot of good stuff here, but then it has like the sort of negative message about the games itself. The kid that plays Ross, I think the acting is okay, but Ross as a character is written in such a way that I don't really like him that much, despite that I probably should, because he loves video games. So there's some issues with it. For me, this is a heavy nostalgia episode. I don't think that it holds up the way Midnight Madness does, though, because Midnight Madness, I gave a perfect score. And I feel justified in that, even though it has a lot of nostalgia. I think the episode on its own actually holds up to that standard. This one, I can't go that high, but I can't go that low. So I ended up with a 9.0, an A minus. All right. Um, yeah, I, I unfortunately, I didn't have a whole lot of nostalgia with this because... It's like, you know, as we discussed, they really focused on pinball and I never played it as a kid. It cost too much money and they didn't talk about arcades because they wanted to focus on the collector and whatnot. I, th- I felt there were significant undertones. To me, it seemed like a very prudish adult wrote this. It's like, you should work. They focused on work, not play. They focused on video games as this like device that conquered you. They had no control over that. They were a negative. There's no positive about the video games at all. And again, as a kid, I loved, and I, I, I picked this episode. I, so as a kid, I love the idea that, Hey, they're talking about video games. You're in a video game. That's cool. But as an adult, I see that's not what they were focusing on. Their, their focus really was about the negatives of video games. And I can't, 
unfortunately get over that because he beat the game and he's punished for it. It's like, man, like not only are games meaningless, but if you beat them, you're punished for eternal hell and damnation. It's like, wow. And so I, I like the acting, the, the adventure itself was kind of puzzling to me. I, I didn't understand the water element. Again, I, th- I think maybe it was electronics, but they didn't really explain that. It's kind of what you said. You made a really good point about the pinball being a very odd choice for a setting for a story because pinball doesn't have a story <laughs> versus a game. I thought that was odd, but the monsters that existed that disintegrated a water didn't really get that. The super soaker didn't really understand that. I didn't understand the rules of what was going on. And it just, you know, the locker, the whole locker experience made no sense. Again, I wanted to like this episode because I loved it as a kid because of video game connection. As an adult, I could not see the negative implications and the convoluted story and the lack of explanation about it. So I gave it an 8.0, which is a B minus, lower than you, lower than you, and lower than I thought I would give it. But Polly Shannon's great in this. And again, I like the overall concept, but the the moral behind this is is basically what I, I I didn't have any nostalgia behind it, and video games are bad, and it's like I you know video games are a core of my life. It's like I, I I refuse to subscribe to that. You you're tossing a Game Boy away because it's gonna possess you or something. Like this sounds like something I would have heard in the you know early 1990s or something. It's like to hear this now is just i couldn't do it so i i gave it what i gave it but i no i, mean, I don't know i'm talking about it now i almost want to give it a lower it's like i almost want to give it a lower because it's no. like i i just i i again i love the concept of them being in the game but it's like it's pretty clear they were doing that to detract from video games like it was not glorifying it at all yeah i mean See, my nostalgia is for the episode itself because I watched this one a ton as a kid. I do agree that I don't have nostalgia for pinball. I think that probably what happened, because the writers on the show, I'm assuming, were probably, what, like in their 30s maybe, maybe late 20s. And this would be sort of like us writing a show right now, but that was meant for kids right now. But we'd be bringing our 90s stuff to it. I think these guys were probably bringing, I don't know, stuff from early arcade days, from the 70s to this episode when they were thinking about it. And I imagine pinball was probably the thing back then. So I think that's where some of the disconnect is at with even the confusion about video game tropes versus pinball or some of the other things that we've, that we've mentioned. There are a lot of, but even even then, even then pinball, it's not viewed positively, right? I mean, pinball is viewed again. Mr. Olson has a collection of pinball machines to refurb and sell, right? Capitalism business. Ross is not to play them. So Mr. Olson's not, you know, saying, Hey, pinball is a great way to X, Y, and Z. He's saying, do not play this. I'm doing this to sell them for money. That's the only reason for it. When he does play it because he's a kid and wants to have fun, he gets condemned to eternal damnation. I mean, it's like, that's the theme behind this, right? It's like, he's, we can talk about, yes, arcade games versus pinball. Maybe pinball was big then, but you can substitute pinball for, you know, 
TMNT four player side scroll action games. You could substitute it for Mortal Kombat Street Fighter. You could substitute it for whatever game you want. Insert whatever game you want. The end game is these games detract you from real work and real purpose, and you should be punished for engaging in them. That to me is the theme. No matter what video game genre you're talking about, it still applies. So that's, you know, again, the nostalgia obviously doesn't exist because of pinball, but at the same time, you can substitute pinball in for whatever other video game genre you like. It still applies. Like you're playing a game to detract you from doing real work. And because of that, even if you win, you should be condemned to hell. And Kristen's doing two thumbs up. She's like, yes, because video games are meaningless, right? Like she's like, absolutely. You beat a video game, go to hell, right? Like that's the theme here. Am I wrong? (laughs) No, man. I mean, no, you're right. I mean, that is the theme, no doubt. Um, Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I just like the episode mainly because I have fond memories of it and I was in my thoughts a lot as a kid and maybe I didn't quite get the theme at the time, but I mean, yeah, I mean, as an adult, I can see where you're coming from. I'm not really, you know, this isn't one I feel like super strong about where it's like, I mean, if you had given like Midnight Madness an 8.0, the podcast would be over. There would be no discussion. I would, I would, I would, but, de- I, mean, I would delete everything. Yeah, it would be, be like, I'm yeah, done. we would, we would, it would be over. Like it would just, we just delete the back catalog, everything. Yeah, like Doctor Vink at least likes film as a medium. Like he still loves film. He directed films. He just disagrees with where it went, right? Versus here, where it's like this isn't like an old school gamer who's like, I like pinball and I hate X Y. It's like, no, I just. I hate all games. I just want games because other people like games and I can refurb machines to sell them. Or he's a soul collector, which is, you know, Mr. Olson could very well just be collecting souls. Like he could just be an evil person. So that's another idea as well, because he very well may have hired Steven knowing kids like playing video games and having fun and wasting their time playing video games. Collect a soul. Here's Ross. Hey, another kid, collect a soul. Here comes another kid. What kid's not going to want to play pinball? Collect a soul. Like he might just be a soul collector. I think he's. I think he's far more evil than Doctor Vink. No, I could agree with that. I mean, listen, I'll I'll defend Doctor Vink all day, but I mean, Mister Olson. Yeah, I mean, I mean, he is an evil guy. But Ross made a deal. You can't go back on a deal. That's all there is to it. What deal? What deal did he make? He didn't make a deal to go to you know Eternal Damnation in a pinball game. No, no, but he was supposed to listen. He didn't listen, so he, tough luck. As a precursor to getting a job, <laughs> not <laughs> it's like if my boss is like, "Do this," and I'm like, "No," I get fired. I don't like get sent to Eternal Damnation. Well, uh, well, unless your boss that is, is Mr. Not, Olson, that is not- and then it was, <laughs> <laughs> there you go. This has been an epic episode, but I think we're closing in. I mean, over two and a half hours, probably on somewhere around that mark on here, I think. So we did have, just so the listeners know, we did have another episode that we had prepared for today. But unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, because we'll be able to give it better treatment, we are going to hold it for 
whenever our next Are You Afraid of the Dark episode comes out. And there is, there will be many more Are You Afraid of the Dark episodes. Should we leave them with the name of the episode before we uh, peace out? Of course. I will first say, though, that this is the episode, outside of the you know Goosebumps ones, I have the least amount of notes for. And yet... I, I feel like we could talk forever, you know, and it's like, it's just us in general being able to talk with each other. Plus the source material. It's like, it's, it's so brilliant. So it's like, I, again, fewest amount of notes I've ever had to lead to the longest episode yeah. we've ever had. It's kind of surreal, but yeah, we did have to cut an episode and which episode did we cut that we will for sure include in the next one as of course a teaser. Well, I don't know if any of you guys listen to the radio, but if you do, make sure you tune to station 109.1 featuring Ryan Gosling and Gilbert Gottfried. Follow us on Instagram at the Nostalgic Millennial Podcast and Twitter at the Nostalgic MP. And don't forget to send your comments and questions which may be featured on a future episode. Until next time, when we return to the 1990s.